California, in Malibu, somewhere in western Los Angeles. They were created by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission, to help alcoholics and drug addicts by means of compassion and connection rather than control. They are oral recovery, and they help people, and people love them for it. Their team has decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI, they have amenities, you know the amenities, sound bath meditation, fucking surfing, equine therapy, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, Oro can help you. Let them check them out at ororecovery.com. Check out the reviews. It's worth checking out and maybe you will check in. I need to tell you guys about customstickers.com. I love stickers. Do you love stickers? 
Check them out, customstickers.com. Use the code DOPEY20. You get 20% off your stickers. Make dopey stickers. Make stickers for your band, your podcast, whatever. Customstickers.com. Start sticking. DOPEY20 saves you 20% off. I want to tell you about a great podcast called Recovery in the Middle Ages, a podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss all topics recovery-based, 12 steps, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings and so much more. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages wherever you get your podcasts or at middleagesrecovery.com. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave. That was a very hearty hello. And the song at the front of the show is by Dopey Fan Bailey. And I love that song. I don't know why. It's in my head all the time. And he especially loves Fentanyl J. And don't we all love Fentanyl J.? And I have to start this show by saying, as far as I know, Fentanyl J is still alive and well in Suffolk County, New York. He is not on the show today, and uh, he'll be back. Fentanyl J will be back. We're going to say hashtag pray for J or pray for Fentanyl J or just hashtag Fentanyl. I don't know. Hashtag, I, don't, I don't find that hashtags actually work, but Jay's not on the show I, I have to stalk him. He'll be back for all the Jay. It's funny because people like are like, where's Jay? Where's Jay? Where's Jay? And then I have Jay on and they're like, fuck Jay. Fuck Jay. We don't want to hear from Jay. But next time Jay is on, there will be revelatory fentanyl Jay information. I want to wish dopey OG Annie Ellie a very happy birthday. Happy birthday. Love. We love Annie Ellie. It was her birthday. Big, big happy birthday to Annie. Everyone in the Dopey Nation, if you haven't wished Annie a happy birthday, it was last Friday, but it's still it's still fine to wish her a happy birthday now. And I feel really good. This episode of the show is like fucking crazy town. This is the demonic meth and sex cavalcade you guys have all been waiting for. We have Boston 2.0 who wrote a book called Meth. <laughs> he wrote a book called, his book is called The Meth Bible, Fire and Ice. And then we are joined by another old-time dope, fucking Don. You remember Don from back in the day. Thousand Vicodin Bottle Don from the classic Methadone episode. He is back to talk of his relapse and re-emergence into the land of dopey and recovery. I was very excited to hear from Don again and Boston Born Again, Boston 2.0. It's fucking serious dopey business. But first, I want to read this email. Dear Dave, 
I'm a late 30-something-year-old woman living in Los Angeles and was looking for a podcast to highlight the misery I was living while in active addiction. I came across Dopey and connected with you immediately. I've listened every day in traffic on the 101 back and forth from my shitty job. I started the most recent episode and learned right away you had lost your pod partner, Chris. I immediately stopped and went back in the deck to episode one. As I got deeper into the episodes, my heart is breaking knowing that at some point Chris will say toodles for the last time. I didn't start listening to Dopey because I was looking for help with getting clean. I've been an addict for a long time. I hated my life and blamed everyone else for it. I have a hard time opening up to people, especially about my addiction. I pushed everyone away and they eventually stopped reaching out. I sort of gave up and accepted the fact that I ruined my life and my looks and would die alone because of drugs and alcohol. Because I used drugs alone, I convinced myself that nobody but my dealer had a clue what was going on with me. I was fooling myself, my family, work, friends, etc. Ha ha. Guess what? I was fooling no one. I guess she says, I convinced myself that nobody but my dealer had a clue what was going on, and I was fooling everyone. That's what she said. My family, work, friends, etc. Ha ha ha. Guess what? I was fooling no one. I quit the shit on Christmas Day, and it may be a little too early to do a victory dance, but I've been up and down this pogo stick many times, and the hard part for me at least is over. I am already making strides, reconnecting with my loved ones. I saved my ass from getting fired, hopefully, and maybe even saved my life, to be honest. I hope and pray that I have stepped off the merry-go-round for good this time. One day at a time, right? Dave, I appreciate the sacrifice you and Chris made by putting all your personal embarrassing details out there for the whole world to hear for shits and giggles. I also really appreciate the reality check reminder you and Chris gave me regarding what will happen when we continue to dance with the devil. I wanted to say thanks because if I had not come across Dopey, I may not have taken that good, hard look at myself in the mirror. I may not have decided to take the necessary steps to get clean and to start picking up the pieces of what's left of me and my life. Your podcast makes me feel like I'm not going through this all alone. I think there are lots of people out there like me going through this with no one to talk to. If anyone actually takes the time to read this, thank you. You're really helping people, Dave. So please keep it going. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Yours truly, from a fellow Tarzana Treatment Center junkie alumni. Thank you. And she called herself Sparkles. Thank you for the email, Sparkles. I'm glad you're on the path. And she wrote me again, and she's still on the path. So congratulations, Sparkle. Yeah, I went to Tarzana, I, I think. I, I don't even remember. I was so uh, benzoed out in L.A. I don't remember where I really went. Maybe Chris definitely went there. I, I In my imagination, I went there. And... If you're looking for a great treatment center, I need to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by Mountainside. And Mountainside is in Connecticut, in Canaan, Connecticut. And Mountainside is a, is a very mythological place for Dopey Nation because it is where Chris and I first met. It was 2011. He was, I think, smoking someone else's cigarette in khaki pants and a white T-shirt. And I was wearing a green uh, insulated hoodie and I was smoking cigarettes too and we struck up a conversation and uh, talked a bunch of shit and had a bunch of fun. 
And Mountainside is is way more than a place to talk shit and have fun. It is a place to get sober. It has a full continuum of care, which includes detox, residential, long-term residential, outpatient, and recovery coaching programs. Chris was there long-term. And Bill Blaber was there, who passed away. Rest in peace, Bill. He ran the coaching programs. And what's cool about Mountainside is they offer a huge range of holistic wellness activities, and I've done them all there. I did yoga, acupuncture, sound bath, sweat lodge, art and music therapy. They do a ton of outdoor stuff. It's an amazing place. They set up a little dopey Mountainside site, which is, of course, mountainside.com slash dopey. They have a hotline, 1-888-833-4922. Call them up. Mention you heard about it from Dopey. Me and Chris met there. Um, it's an amazing place. Check them out. Oh, yeah, I totally forgot. We have to give a huge congratulations to Janine Coulter of Chasing Heroin Podcast on 9, nine number 9, 9, 9, big years of recovery. Congratulations, Janine. Check out Chasing Heroin. I've been on it. So number 9. All right. There's this guy on Instagram named Damien who keeps sending me crazy messages. He sent the, uh, I think it was the red, wet Coke message last week, and he wrote me something else. He wrote, so that second part of the message is what I think all my friends think when I'm on a come down or generally scattered. Yep, scattered. In, enter that into the dopey dictionary for a word in Australia for being on meth for two straight weeks and being so scattered that you go to move your left hand and your right hand grab something. When I'm cooking for that long, I see what I call shadow rats, and they look like a black painted rat cardboard cutout that runs along the floor against the wall like a shadow but then disappears into a corner or that feeling that you have two big clear crystals hanging on the outside of your eyes glittering when you blink. Hmm, that it's over feeling of going to bed after wandering the streets for two weeks, not remembering who you met or what you really felt being there. It's cooked in all derelict. I wonder if he's trying to say derelict or dialect. It's cooked in all derelict dialect. Has anyone else said that? I started doing box runs for a cook I went to high school with. I think the USA calls it smurfing. Man, I don't know what smurfing is. Anybody out there, please tell me. But I'd go into a chemist and ask for a box of 90 tablets Sudafed, and they would ask me for ID, and my girlfriend would go in all fresh from high school and up to nothing bad and get the three boxes of 90 tablets. Yep, 270 math tabs in one stop at one chemist. I'd fucking get raped of all my identity, so I thought, fuck this. I will do it once, and you can do it three times, and we're done. 900 Sudafed tablets in 40 minutes. Now I'm feeling invincible. So we go, so we got to Old Mate. That's what we call our dealers in Australia, in Oz, because the best dealers come from doing time. And inside, we were inmates. But now we have been released. We are old mates. So your dealer's usually an old mate. So we would get a gram of pink, wet crystal 
from Sudafed plus 500 bucks cash unless Olmate spotted us to smurf for him. I guess maybe smurfing is stealing. I don't know. But that was my first fry shot. We would get fry shot, and, and we need a lot of explanations. We would mix the whole gram with one half to full one milliliter syringes of water, and she would expand to 50 of mix. I would shoot 100 milligrams full one milliliter syringe, just enough to bend the plunger and see a trickle of blood to know you're not going to miss, and bang it. I would start hallucinating after a minute or so. I remember being in someone's backyard so cooked in Wellington Point that I said to this hot, petite, blonde girl, Chrissy, that I can't believe my dick has shrunk to the size of a baked bean and showed her, and she still lifted the back of her dress like I was in, like, Flynn. But I freaked out. This is, like, the best note I've ever gotten. But I freaked out because I knew she was... I knew that was not hard without pulling it in for two hours until I've gone so sick in my thoughts that I feel perverted and cannot go in public for a week. That was my 90s, and I still smoke a little bit of meth through a glass pipe because my housemates smoke it loco. But it's not like the old days nowadays. I can smoke two points of some gear and go to bed an hour later, and sometimes you have to hit and be up four days. But part two of my story is MDMA and hallucinogens. Stay tuned. Part three will be heroin and morphine and part four, cocaine. And that's Damien. And Damien, I have to say, this is an incredible note, even though it doesn't really make a lot of sense and I don't know what half of it means. Uh, I would love a voicemail. Why don't you record a voicemail and send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I will definitely send you whatever you want. If you want socks or stickers, I just want to hear your voice talking this Australian shit. So uh, please consider it. And then please consider getting help because I, I want you to get better. And I know someone else that might want to get you better. And that's Diamond Recovery. Damien, maybe you should come to the States and check out Diamond Recovery. Diamond Recovery is all about helping people like you. Addicts, people like me. They want to help us. They are thrilled to be sponsors of Dopey, and we are thrilled to have them. They have three awesome treatment centers up and running, one in California, one in Georgia, and one in Florida. They want to help you. They know people like us need a friendly ear, so they have our backs 24-7. They have a hotline. The number for the hotline is 844 844- 909-2525. Call Diamond. Thank them for being sponsors of Dopey. If you're fucked, get a bet at Diamond. They say their spot is like a mixture of a hotel and a hospital. And they also say they have a spot that's totally dedicated to helping co-occurring mental health disorders. They also treat young adults and teenagers. So call up Diamond at 844-909-2525 and thank you, Diamond. Man, that Damien story. I love that kind of stuff. That Damien kind of stuff really wets my whistle. Did you guys notice that HBO is celebrating the, I think, the 25th anniversary of The Sopranos? And if you haven't watched The Sopranos, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by The Sopranos. Seriously, if you, it's not really brought to you by The Sopranos. But if you haven't watched The Sopranos in a while and you love The Sopranos like I do, I'd suggest going back in there. So fucking good. 
James Gandolfini, so good. Michael Imperioli, so fucking great. You know, I have his number. I ran into him at Washington Square Park one time, and I freaked him out. I'm thinking about calling him up and getting him back on the show. I think he liked doing the show, but also didn't like doing the show. But maybe we'll call up Michael Imperioli and get him back this year. Because, I'm just going to say this, he came out with Talking Sopranos after he went on Dopey. And when he was on Dopey, and if you don't remember this, I suggest going back and listening to the Michael Imperioli episode. We played Sopranos trivia. We reenacted a scene from The Sopranos where I played Christopher and he played the junkie. One of the greatest moments of my life. If you haven't heard that, go back and listen to it and then send in an email or a voicemail. I need some good voicemails and I need some good emails. So send that shit to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. There's so much stuff to talk about. I really think we need to do the mini Tuesday show, the mini-sode, the dopey short Tuesday episode. I don't know if I'm actually going to do it. I really, really want to do it. If you are anywhere near New York City on January 30th, I cordially invite you to come to a dopey dry January event with the Phoenix. It will be on 17th Street at the Peoplehood headquarters it's like this crazy thing that we're doing free pizza free fellowship free fun free non-alcoholic drinks chloe lebranch is gonna do comedy hank azaria is gonna do some talk with me and the great ray brown is gonna do a song i will have information posted all over the place so please get tickets they're free but there's only a hundred and we've gotten rid of a couple already so if you're interested i want dopey people there so please get tickets All right, I'm going to read this note from Sarah. Sarah is a hardcore hippie seamstress, and she's working on some dopey designs. So here we go. Hi, Dave. Long-time listener. And she sent in some voicemails, but I never read this before. Sent in a few emails in the past, have gone to a few dopey Zoom meetings, wanted to hit you with the dopey. First, I'll tell you I've gotten liquid LSD in my eyes on Shakedown, and then... About a few rows of cars later, I had to run back and ask for my other eye because I was afraid I'd have a weird one-eyed trip. So this dopey story is LSD-related. I was on fish tour at Nassau Stop at the hotel after the show. My boyfriend and a bunch of friends went back to Shakedown to see about after parties. My buddy Jake and I stayed back and were just chilling. I decided to open the door and poke my head around and see that there's a naked man crouched on the floor, knocking on the door across the way. I shut the door and looked to Jake and screamed, there's a naked man outside crouching and knocking on the door across the way. You got to check to see if I'm hallucinating or not. I started to rack my brain as to why this guy was naked and knocking on the door. He looked like he was on his hands and knees, so my pervert brain went right to this man as being punished by his dominatrix. Dude, So my homie looks and confirms that there is, in fact, a naked man crouching and knocking on the door across the way. We freaked out, and we were like, this is crazy. What should we do? I suggested my theory. We decided to just do nothing and laugh about it in the room. A few hours later, my boyfriend and friends come back to the room talking about how Dewey, my boyfriend, saves the day. Turned out there was a naked man in the lobby about to get tased by the police. Dewey told the police about the concert and the drugs we all take and how it must be a mistake and probably related. Turns out the naked man and his wife were at the concert. 
and took some landing gear, which is, she says, Xanax, after the show. He woke up to pee and thought the hotel door was the bathroom and locked himself out naked. Since his wife was passed the fuck out on Xanax, she wouldn't hear the knocking or pick up the phone in the room. The man was naked and had no ID, and that's why a naked man was knocking on a door crouched in a hotel hallway. Unfortunately, Dewey is no longer with us and overdosed on fentanyl during that relapse. He said he would never go back to heroin, but we all knew. We all know what they say about eventually going back to your drug of choice when you relapse. Jake and I are sober to this day and still stay in touch and laugh about naked hallway man. I sell these Dewey roses, roses with 13-point bolt leaves to raise money for harm reduction and hand out Narcan when and where I can. Dopey Podcast was the only recovery I had for a while, and I'm so grateful it exists, and you kept on going after the loss of Chris. Love to the Dopey Nation. Please do another batch of the Bertha Dopey hoodies. I would like to send you some Dewey Roses. She did send me some. Thanks for reading, and I don't mind if you don't read this on air. I just want you to know how much Dopey means to me and so many. Toodles for Chris, Sarah Jacks. And Sarah Jacks is Instagram is called Reclaim Purpose, and she does great things around harm reduction, and she does amazing design, and look for some fucking dopey uh, Reclaim Purpose design. And also she's making me some kind of fancy tracksuit, which I'm ridiculously excited to see. And this is a very meth-heavy show, so I appreciate the LSD story. Send in your LSD stories. Send in your meth stories. I just want to say how grateful I am to everybody who listens and participates. I cannot believe that uh, the show has grown as much as it has, and it means a lot to me, and it's still a lot of fun. Our Wednesday morning dopey recovery meeting has been very fiery, so if you can join Patreon, you can come. Join Patreon. There's so much good shit going on Patreon. It's, it's fucking cheap www.patreon.com slash dopey podcast. You basically pay what you want. Support the cause. Join Patreon. Before we get to Boston Born Again is the real deal. He's a horrible meth addict. He's a hardcore demon seeing meth addict in recovery who's found God. But he went to hell in order to find God. And he wrote a book. It is called Fire and Ice, the Meth Bible, and it is fucking bananas meth and and addiction and recovery and dumb shit and sex addiction. So check out Boston's book. And before we get to Boston, I just need to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Discover Recovery in the Pacific Northwest. Do you guys remember Chris Paulson? He was on the show. He talked about his brother, Battle rapper Cadillac Ron Paulson. Chris is going to be back whenever he comes back to the East Coast. He has a treatment center called Discover Recovery. Discover Recovery helps people in the Pacific Northwest. We all know that area is very underserved and needs serious, serious help. The place is beautiful. The staff is professional. Chris just said to me, he's like, dude, I'm not good at selling this place. The bottom line is we operate with integrity. You know me, and we're trying to do right by those we serve. We have a proven track record. Tell the audience to check out our reviews. So check out, go to Yelp and check out Discover Recovery. Go to www.discoverrecovery.com. 
And if you're in the Pacific Northwest and you need help, go to Discover Recovery. Check them out at discoverrecovery.com. That place is awesome. They have two locations. They treat young people as well. They do it all. Check them out, discoverrecovery.com. All right. Thank you, Discover Recovery. Thank you to all our sponsors. And now it's time for the Demon Sex Meth Cavalcade with Boston 2%. This is a great honor. And Dopey Nation, just relax, because it's going to get very, very crazy. This is Boston, Boston 2%. I don't know. I guess he discovered Dopey through... Facebook and here and there people discover Dopey and they say, I want to come on the show. And I say, send in a voicemail, send in an email. Boston sent me his book and it's, <laughs> and it's called Fire and Ice, the Meth Bible. And it is fucking insanity. Thank you for coming here. Thank you so much for having me, man. It's like, I know, I'm sure you expected a real like swanky spot not my dad's apartment in in chelsea i actually love it i took a three-hour drive a three thousand mile plane ride two ubers and a two-hour train ride to be here and it was worth every freaking minute here here we here we are and like dude boston's story is so crazy and and i want to say comprehensively crazy because it stretches i mean how long were how long were you on drugs for i was in active addiction for 25 years and you came from Boston proper? I, I live I lived in a town called Reading, Massachusetts. One of the guys from Aerosmith's from there. Okay. Well, yeah. We and, we have great roots in, in Massachusetts. Yeah. We have a great Boston group of, of dopes. So they, they know about it. So you came up in, in Reading in the suburbs, stoners paradise of the 90s yeah absolutely you know the first chapter of the book's called virgin lungs and the second one's high school high and really it was like to me it was like stand by me on weed you know and it's a group of broken kids who gravitate towards each other with the 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 box of misfit toys and uh and you know that's the way it rolls in in most friend groups and we uh we bonded we trauma bonded and then all of a sudden we started uh we found that first half a joint in a parliament pack and uh we were under a bridge in Reading, Massachusetts and we were off and fucking running man and even before that though you had fallen in love with alcohol right no it was after that that was about 12 years old about 12 13 and then the summer going into 8th to ninth grade i remember my first drink and I put it in the book, you know, the story based on that. And I remember taking the first swig of cheap Underwood and Pierce vodka and orange juice. I was with my buddy, this Irish kid. And, uh, and I remember it hitting my stomach and an instant chemical reaction takes place. And I remember thinking a thought, like I heard my own voice in my head and I said, that is what I'm fucking talking about. I want to feel like this the rest of my life. And you had alcoholic roots, family I grew up in an alcoholic home and there was also a dark mental illness present. I suffered childhood trauma and I had the alcoholic gene. I mean, every male in my family going back a hundred years or more is, has been an alcoholic. And, uh, you know, so all the seeds were there. The perfect storm was there. It was, I was destined to be on drugs and alcohol for sure. When you talk about childhood trauma, like specifically, like when you look back, what do you, what do you recognize? Broom handles to the head, orange electrical cords, casserole dishes, being stabbed with a candlestick. Um, Your folks. Y- yeah. And I never tell, say which one, but uh, but yeah, it, it left some scars. I'm going to say it was your mother. It it, it might have been. 
<laughs> she, my parents are both, they're dead now anyway. Okay. So yeah, I talk about it a little freely, but yeah, it was, it was really bad, man. And you, would you say you medicated it? Absolutely. I mean, it was, I mean, the love affair I had with alcohol, I was an everyday vodka drinker at 14. I was suppressing deep, deep childhood trauma and, uh, and, you know, it was like verbal too. So there's a lot of hurt feelings and shit like that. So, you know, it, it killed everything instantly. All the childhood trauma drained like water in a bathtub. And I, I loved it. And instead, you, you, you had your friend group who you were like crazy tight with. Yeah. And you just got fucked up with them on a daily basis. Yeah. We used to call ourselves the hood kids. You know, we lived in this affluent white community outside of Boston, like 10 minutes north of Boston. I mean, the town was basically cursed, a huge, huge drug problem. So, I mean, we, we were doing, I remember cocaine 14, like the alcohol came. And then I just said, give me it all right away. So it was alcohol, cocaine, Oxycontin heroin, benzodiazepines. Like I had tons of, uh, you know, the green Klonopins and all that. Like they, anything I could get my hands on, I was doing more. What was like the favorites? Like if like it, before you, cause you wound up moving to Texas at how old? Uh, I, I was moving. I moved to Texas later on, like in my early twenties. So like the ones I loved to abuse in high school were the booze was my number one. I loved cocaine, but I, I fell in love. I'm a motorhead, man. I love the Adderall and the Ritalin. I used to do Ritalin like crazy, man. It was that's where my my uh, my love affair with methamphetamines actually began. Were you ADD? Uh, I might have been, but I don't think so. I think I just I just I just think I loved it, and I love the sexual aspect of speed. Yeah. When did you first discover the sexual aspect of speed? In high school, when I first started doing it. <laughs> oh yeah, there's a great that great scene where you guys go away to some cabin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we we were uh we were actually up at this mansion. You know, it was like a haunted mansion yes. in North Andover, Massachusetts. You know, we used to go up there and party and uh yeah, it's it was wild, man, just free for all. Cuz one of the great themes of Fire and Ice, the meth bible is is sex and speed. Yeah. And and, and like it's funny how brain chemistry is different and how different drugs hit different people and right. whatever kind of different way. And like, when's the first time you remember amphetamines hitting your system? Um, I had to be like 15 years old or so. I mean, me and there's, there's a guy coming to meet me here later today. And there was another kid that we were both friends with. And, you know, I was, I was crushing Ritalin up and snorting it right off of my, uh, my book cover in art class while the teacher had his back turned and he was doing something on the board. And we were ripping lines right there in the classroom, man. So I fell in love with it then. And was, did anyone know? Did parents know? Did teachers know? When did people start finding out? Nobody gave a fuck about me back then. I mean, I'd show up to school dead drunk. You know, I, I remember my typewriter class, the teacher tripped and broke her head off the desk and I was so drunk on gin, I started laughing and like, I just walked up and left class, you know, and I, I was basically, I basically dropped out of school. I stopped paying attention in sixth grade, man. I have like a sixth grade education. That's why it's amazing. I wrote that huge ass book and I... It's a giant book. 716 pages of fire, man. It's an opus. It's an opus to drug addiction and recovery. When I sat down to write it, I remember thinking, I want to write the greatest fucking book about crystal meth that's ever been written. And I think we did that. It is a great, it, 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 it's, but I wouldn't say it's just about crystal meth. You know, it, it, it's a fucking, it's, it's an American travelogue of the 2020s, 20, 2000s 
where you fucking travel the country and you i mean one of the things that struck me in the book was um the darkness yeah you know what i mean like the the demonic side and and the lightness obviously when's the first time do you think that supernatural shit interested you well i i I usually start the story like this and i say i was born on january 31st 1982 the devil tried to kill me that day and that's the truth i almost died the day of my birth and i've been fighting for my damn life ever since and uh how did the devil try to kill you on the day of your birth i was born like purple and they thought i had a hole in my heart and i i did but it was more of a spiritual hole but all I know is that my dad and my mom would tell me for years, they're like, you almost didn't make it the night that you were born, you know? And I pulled through and then, uh, you know, and then as soon as the drugs and alcohol started, I was a powder keg, man. I mean, I was, I was really bad. A falling down, blacked out, sad, drunk at 14 years old. Star baseball player, gave up everything, lost interest, dropped out of high school in 10th grade, started working at a gas station. I mean, I did hundreds of hits of ecstasy. I was taking anything I could get my hands on to an absolute extreme. Just like I'd never done anything fucking halfway. So my drug addiction wasn't halfway. And then if you look at the size of the book, I didn't write a book halfway. And I'm just an extreme person. When do you think you started encountering demons, though, or or really being plugged into the supernatural? And, and that's why the book is so popular is because it's it explains the spiritual side of meth. And I would say the first stuff I had to deal with that was when I started getting into the meth game, probably like 2016, 17 area. So what, when you were a kid, there were no demon visitations. There was no thought of God, the devil, any of that shit. I, we were raised Catholic, but we didn't go to church or nothing besides maybe like once a year, okay? You know, but I will say this, like me and my, me and my, one of my family members, we were kind of gifted, like where we would experience, where we would kind of see things coming before they would happen and we would speak it and then it would happen like the next day or whatnot. And we used to have a running joke and we would say, all you got to do is say it, you know? So I think the gifts were always there. And I mean, tons of stuff like that happens all the way through today. But when I got into the meth game, I... I was starting to experience vulgar displays of power. I mean, stuff that would blow the human mind. I mean, stuff that was physically happening. I don't want to jump ahead too quickly, though. Yeah. How did you, why did you wind up going to Texas in the first place? Well, uh, because that just sets the stage in a way, because Texas is this dark, oh, yeah. fucking rough place. And, and not that Massachusetts isn't, but it's a different kind of subculture. And it's set in the city. Corpus Christi, Texas, which quite literally means the body of Christ in Spanish. I thought that was interesting. God set the stage there. But um, I'll just say this. I turned 21 years old on a Friday night. On Monday morning, I was in my first treatment center, one of nine. What was the first bottom? Um, I, I just got completely fucked up on my 21st weekend. My friends threw me a party at this place in Saugus, Massachusetts. I walked in at like five at night. There was nobody there. And then I, I was just drinking. I looked around. I'm like, I know everybody in here. The place was packed. Hundreds of people. It's like our whole high school showed up to this party. By Monday, I, I was really in bad shape physically. They took a blood draw and they told me, if you keep drinking, you're not going to see your 25th birthday. And I just went harder. I didn't even see suicide was always the mission for me. My first suicidal thoughts were like 10, 12 years old, somewhere in there. You know, so. When I drank, it was suicidal. 
suicidally drinking. When I did drugs, suicidally doing that too. I mean, it was like, I didn't care. I openly admitted I was an alcoholic, you know? And how conscious, how conscious were you of that? Like, cause when I was using heroin, I remember there was, there was a time where I was like, well, if I can take a big enough shot, maybe I won't wake up. And like, yeah. and, and that, that was as close to real suicidal using as I got. If, if I didn't wake up, if I overdosed, that would have been okay. Yeah. No big deal. It would have been like, okay. Which, which could be described as using suicidally. Cause right. why would anybody put themselves in that situation? And this is the other thing. Like we used to listen to the music that glorified it. Right. And then I loved all the fat comedians, Chris Farley, John Belushi, Sam Kinison. I mean, anybody who shoved, a kilo of cocaine up their nose. I, I idolized Nikki six Motley crew. I mean, I mentioned that in the book, like my idols, my heroes were all drug addicts and a lot of them were dead. But when I, when you say that you use suicidally, like, was it on the front of your brain that you hoped this would kill you? Or was it like, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to use as much as I can. And if I die, that's right. Like I would just, I had the mindset that I'm going to do as much as I can. And if I die, it's going to be a romantic thing. You know, and and that's what I idolized. So I wanted to emulate that. And and I didn't give a fuck if my heart stopped beating. Right. And you wound up in your first treatment at 22? 21 years old. My 21st birthday. Friday night, I turned 21. I was at the bar Thursday night at 12.01. By Monday morning, 9 a.m., I was in my first treatment center. Was oh, that in Mass? It was in Mass. And I started, that's where the treatment center mill started for me. I did nine treatments. Some of the, the East Coast the best. I was in McLean and a bunch of them. Yeah. Nothing worked for me. The guy who I started the show with who died went to McLean's and uh, and he's from Massachusetts. Yeah, Chris. And, yeah. And so did uh, James Taylor went to McLean's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That he wrote, uh, I think, Fire, Fire and Rain, Rain at yeah. McLean's. Yeah. Was that a big, is there a plaque to James Taylor? I didn't see any James Taylor plaques, <laughs> but I probably didn't see much of anything. I think I was on so many, uh, so many uh, benzos when they put me in there. But. No, I think that's, that's the best thing about treatment is that they give you benzos. Right. <laughs> you, so you, so you leave there and, and I remember reading like, you're like, well, maybe I can just drink beer. Yeah. Maybe I can just like live and not be clean. My, my dad actually, that first treatment center on the way home, we bought a 20 pack for me. So it was like on the way home back from rehab, I bought it. He bought me a 20 pack of beer. How bad of an alcoholic was your dad? Very, very high functioning alcoholic businessman. Um, super cool guy too. He, he had his issues, but he was nothing like me. Like he had the gene. He was an alcoholic, but he went to work every day. He was super successful. And, and he didn't know who he was dealing with with you. No, it, it's almost like the curse rolled downhill. Like it got worse and worse. The snowball the, effect. Yeah. I came from a long line of brilliant people. I mean, you know, my one of my ancestors, like my great great grandpa, was the chief cardiologist surgeon at Harvard University. All my family was my grandpa was a doctor, my dad was a businessman, but it just like kept going downhill as the generations went and the addictions got worse. And then I, I mean, I was really bad. I'm the I'm the worst of the bunch for sure. There's no doubt. Well, for, let's, let's hope it let's hope it ends with you. That's that's I, I think it will. I mean, uh it, you know, we cracked the the curse, I think, like the Red Sox did in 04, you know? Well, it's, it's a ser I mean, I think like your story is a serious exorcism. Yeah. Like the demons are drawn out. It's like they, they were baked in and this book fucking exercised the fuck out of them. 
Yeah, I mean, I was having major spiritual experiences. Like, I, I just remember, like, that went on. I started a family when I was in my mid-20s. I thought, like, when I hit 25, I said, okay, you get married at 25. That's what you do. So I met a lady. She had a kid already, instant family. So the drugs kind of went away for a while, you know? Very, very seldom, but the booze never left. I was sober for, like, maybe, I'd say, like, maybe 11 months I was sober just enough time, just long enough to start taking hostages. I tricked them into thinking that I was normal. Well, you were very high functioning. You always, ex you know, excelled at your work. Yeah. One of my favorite stories that, that I remember is like you get to Texas, you don't know what to do, and you get the job at the bar. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, you fucking stumble onto like El Primo Coke dealer. Yeah. And like, was that where Coke like really starts to become an interest for you oh yeah well I'm, I'm bartending at a comedy club and i meet this guy and he gives me a blast in the bathroom and i'm like this is like pure cocaine and it was literally like an eighth of the price of what i was used to paying back home and it was unlimited access and then you know you're just doing it out in the open you know did you did you ever get to do comedy on stage i never did and and i moved to vegas when i was 19 to be a stand-up comic it was like right around the terrible event that happened in New York City. I moved out there two weeks before, and I, I had just taken the ASFAB test. I was going out to Vegas uh, last Wait, minute. What's ASFAB? It, I was joining the National Guard. So I, this is the funny part. I was going to join the National Guard to bridge to law enforcement because I wanted to be an undercover Boston narcotics agent. Well, it's a perfect career for you. Yeah, I would have been great at it. But you're like, you're like, you're like <laughs> it looks like you're in The Departed. Right. You, you, you could be the guy. I would have ended up like Harvey Keitel and Bad Lieutenant. Yes, possibly. Right. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. So I think God redirected my life. Uh, because a lot of those guys didn't come home, you know, and that happened two weeks after and it changed the trajectory of my life. Then I moved back home and then we went to Texas shortly after that. So like, oh, three, oh, four. I feel like it was in that same period that see, and, and this is like a, a topic I find fascinating, but stimulants and pornography. Yeah. And like that double down addiction and the darkness of it. Yeah. I mean, that's a demon. It's like chocolate and peanut butter. Man. Oh, man. That's one of my big demons. Yeah. Chocolate and peanut butter. Chocolate and peanut butter. I have problems with that one. Yeah. Serious. And, and I mean, like pornography, and I was a full-blown pornography, full-blown sex addict. And and that's what the book's about. It's really about when you mix meth with, with sex addiction and how dark life can become because you just, you're broken in every single way. This is interesting to me because uh, we've had a lot of people talk about aspects of sex addiction on the show yeah. but when you say you're a full-blown sex addict what does it look like at that moment so let's just let's just set the stage first please so I'm, i worked this very successful career in the vacation rental business i get beaten a couple bad business deals marriage falls apart wife and kids are gone right as they were leaving i started dabbling in in meth again right I did it when I was in Vegas for a little bit, but I started really like getting a chip on, on meth. I was just snorting it. Everybody starts off snorting it. It's real fun. The sex is amazing on it, stuff like that. So it's real attractive. People start snorting it. So then um, when they left, the absence of the sound of my children's feet on the floor drove me literally insane. I moved back to my father's house in Corpus Christi because I was living on an island like 30 minutes away. And... Uh, and all of a sudden, I get a job as a nighttime cab driver. 
when you go, and that and that's like the entree. That's like highway to hell. That's like cue the music. It's gonna get bad. But yes. but that's fucking twelve years into your drug addiction. Yeah. So how many treatments had you been to at that point? I, I think I went through all. I think probably like seven or eight at that point. Yeah. No. No. All all nine of them. All nine. When I became a cab driver, I was done. I never went to treatment after that again. The next part was I I went on a two-year purposeful suicide mission in the slimy underworld of crystal methamphetamines. And I, and I, I went into this thinking, I love this drug. I am going to kill myself with this drug. And that was the main goal of the whole mission, right? So I move into my dad's. I get the job as the nighttime cab driver, instantly rolling felony. The perfect venue for a junkie. You make your own hours. You can work whenever you want. I worked a 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. I wanted to work at night. The sleaziest of the sleazy. And Corpus Christi is like a crazy party town. I mean, it's right on the Gulf of Mexico. The drug problem is enormous. And it's just, you know, there's strip clubs, pimps, prostitutes, check cashers, money printers, hustlers, Drug dealers. I mean, these are the clientele. I mean, you're ferrying around the lost souls of the night. People that need safe passage uh, to fly under the radar of the police. And basically, my job was to take these people around. And then I learned really quickly there was things that I could do to support my drug habit while in the taxi. And then I start driving my personal vehicle. I'm driving 24 hours a day. You don't get out of the car. Because why would you? No, I mean, it's just... it's. I mean, I didn't pay for anything or receive anything in money in a long time. It was con- it was completely the barter system. Ice was the currency for everything, you know. And I I, I picked up like I I would ferry around a lot of prostitutes. I was friends with a lot of prostitutes. They they paid really good, and they just wanted to make sure that they were safe and whatnot. And uh, you know, the pornography part of it. You know, when I was doing ice, I mean, I would have my trap house in the country club estates. So my grandparents' old house. Pornography would play in the background literally 24 hours a day like it was elevator music, you know? And that's completely normal in the meth life. So your grandparents' house became the trap house. Absolutely. And who wound up showing up? Almost every drug addict you can think of in the city at the time. I mean, it was wild. It was a train of homeless drug addicts in and out. And I mean, it was like... um, You know, I had things people needed and wanted, you know, I was never a gangster. I I brushed shoulders and I worked with a lot of them, but basically I had a place to stay and I had a brand new car and I drove like a cop. I had a Corpus Christi taxi driver's license and, um, and, and I, I had, I had the keys, man, you know, and they don't pull you over in the taxi. They're very politically connected. You know, so it's a very safe thing for people. You're protected because you work for this company. Yeah. The cab company. When, when, when was the first time you did meth? The first time I did crystal meth, uh, real meth, was in Las Vegas, Nevada, 2001. And it was like, it was that kind of meth back then out in that city in particular where you would stay up and you'd lose 10 pounds in three days. It was wild. <laughs> right. That was a sexual nightmare, too. I mean, yeah, crazy. And you talk about after you lost your family that your sex addiction really kicked in. Where did it first start showing up before that, though? I would say, like, the cocaine 
days, you know. But the thing was, like, back then, I was, like, 350 pounds. So the sex part of it wasn't really an issue. It was a lot more porn than sex. I wasn't a hot commodity back then. And you don't talk about the food addiction aspect. No, but that comes from childhood trauma because that was a reward and a, like, a a hush-your-mouth thing after a a bad beating. Soothing. Soothing. Soothe with food. I love you. I'm sorry. Right. You know? So food takes on that role too. Yes. And then and then the alcoholism fueled the food addiction because I would feel so shitty all the time that I would just I would comfort eat all day, you know, until I got more of I I was a binge drinker at night. But the cocaine was where the pornography started, but then real life crystal meth took it to a whole different level. Because the meth <laughs> took off the weight. And then all of a sudden you could be a hot commodity in this world. And also you're you're safe passage for the prostitutes. Right. You, and you're you're also an alcoholic, right. a drug addict, a food addict, a trauma person. So right. they saw somebody that they knew because it was probably similar to who they were. I actually I wasn't really with the prostitutes that much, but I would I would pick up like trap house girlfriends and like girls in the game and stuff. And I had a place to stay. So it was a revolving door every three days. I'd get a new one. And then I had a girlfriend for a while. And, you know, see, my my drug drug life was very much like bougie, middle class heroin addict. Like I always yeah. joke about like I wouldn't have been on heroin if I didn't have cable TV. Right. Like I wouldn't have survived. Right. In the street. <laughs> like I just I just wouldn't have. Right. Um I was more of a fan of DVD. <laughs> yeah, well whatever whatever the case was. You know right. what I mean? Like I needed a couch and I needed like a television set yeah. for me to really enjoy being a heroin addict. Right. But I, like I was not running the streets in any kind of way. Here's the thing about meth. The poisonous roots of meth go back to the Japanese. They invented it. Hitler's doctor was giving him shots of pervitin. Okay, and that's basically it's crystal meth. And he starts giving it to the military. Then he gives it to the entire country as a pet pill. Okay, this is all in the book Blitzed. You can look it up. It's historically accurate. Then he opens a he commissions one of the big chocolate factories in the country. Now every man, woman, and child is on this drug. And then all of a sudden, the greatest atrocities that the planet's ever seen in war start to happen and he gets obsessed there's a spiritual side to crystal meth okay there's a very demonic side and that's why the book is going crazy is because nobody's ever really talked about what it really looks like he starts looking for the the spear that pierces the side of jesus christ in the bible that's where they got the idea Indiana for Ra- that's yeah. where they got the idea but it wasn't the lost ark he was looking for the spear because it's that crazy meth obsession yeah it i this is my opinion, and this is what I found. I mean, millions of views on my TikTok, hundreds of thousands of comments from all different meth addicts that don't know each other all over the world. Everybody that comments, for like, I'd say 95% say that they have had some type of demonic experience. It's made, in a lot of cases, with red phosphorus, which is literally made with burnt bones. It's a psycho-voodoo drug that does something chemically to the brain that opens up a spiritual portal. Like It, it takes the veil off to the spiritual world. That's why people are seeing shadow people. That's why people are... It's always an experience with the devil. Always. It's always... And it's... I mean... The sex is demonic. It's absolutely wild. I mean, the meth game, I explained it like no one's ever done before. I told the honest truth about what the crystal meth game really looks like. Everyone is sleeping with each other. Everyone's having crazy sex. 
everyone's stealing from stores. Everyone is boosting. Everyone is dealing drugs. It's a it's the craziest lifestyle a person could live, 100%. And it's very evil. So when does it kick in full blast? I'm driving the taxi, and now I'm smoking it like crazy. While you're driving. Um, yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's always on me. You know what I mean? And then I start poking the needles. You know, I when I was in the treatment center mill, I got introduced to needles for the first time. I, I learned how to do drugs more hardcore in treatment than anything else. So to tell us how that that I I first time I, I ever shot up was I was in treatment. Yeah. And uh and some my roommate was like, We should get out of here. I was like, Okay, I have money. He's like, yeah. Great. I know where to get heroin. I was like, Great. And we went home and he's like, You're not snorting heroin anymore. We're shooting it now. Yeah. And then I never snorted heroin. It's again. a waste. Exactly. <laughs> so what was the first time you uh you shot? I shot uh, with the chick that I met in rehab and I actually, I did, you know, I said Nikki six was one of my heroes in addiction. I watched that behind the music and I was shooting up, uh, Smirnoff vodka and heroin. And then, uh, that Not was in the treatment. No, no, no. We, we left treatment and we were at her a house. You AMA. Yeah. We AMA. And then we were, at, or I finished and then I got out and then we, we met up afterwards. I think she was like a veterinarian or some shit. Beautiful. <laughs> Was there any ketamine involved? No. Okay. She probably did it all herself. So you you had learned how to shoot, and have you ever shot crystal meth? I have in it's, L.A. And um, you know, I I it's meth, a very sexual drug for women when they do it that way. I never even got to have meth sex. What? I didn't. I, I maybe I I probably masturbated a bunch. Yeah. But it was like I got to Los Angeles coming out of Florida. And I'm going to say this very quickly just so you know my meth history. Yeah. The show, the show, these guys know my meth yeah. story. I left Florida. I moved to L.A. My best friend who died in the show, my, not the guy who I set up the show, but my best friend died six weeks before he died oh, wow. of fentanyl. He had stopped doing heroin. Uh, he had stopped doing coke. And he didn't. And I left treatment to go live with him. He didn't tell me that he had started doing meth. Right. So when I got to L.A., he is two weeks into meth addiction. Right. And I was like, okay, I'll smoke meth with you. And we would smoke meth. And as soon as I smoked meth, I knew I wanted downers. Like yeah. I knew that this wasn't for me and I wanted downers. Right. And I smoked meth until I got downers. And then I was like, I just want heroin. So I would just put heroin in with the meth and I would only shoot meth alone if I ran out of heroin. It's called a goofball. It is called a goofball. Yeah. One of the better, one of the better names for right. combinations of drugs. Right. And and you know, it's but like nobody's respected for goofballing. Nobody's respected for goofballing. And and I, you know, I used to love uh doing ice and Molly. Like that was a big one. And how would you do it? Um I would usually just eat it. I would eat the Molly, you know, in the morning, like to come down. But you know, I never came down. I was I did I had like a over seven hundred and fifty day run on meth. It was nuts. Were you doing the Molly with the meth in Texas? Yes. In it, the driver job? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you'd be, tell us more. I want to know more. I mean, we're just cruising through the neon slime. I mean, it's trap house after trap house, picking girls up at strip clubs. It's, um, it's houses of ill repute, prostitution. I mean, just, you know, anything you can think of. I mean, we're driving around. I mean, it's literally 24 hours a day. There's always somewhere to go. 
you know, people are calling in personal calls and stuff like that. Like, come pick me up. They request you type of stuff like that. I'm just realizing something. Mm -hmm. There was a footnote in the middle of this tidal wave of debauchery, which was you got married and have children. Yeah. How did that happen in the middle? Well, it was that was before the The crazy. Right. Yeah. So that was what led up to the breakup of that was what led me to the two year long suicide attempt with meth. But nobody ever told me that meth rarely kills you. It takes you to parts of Hades that most people don't even know exist. It blows the human mind. And what it does is it drives you absolutely insane. Okay. So it leads to mental illness, really. And a lot of people do die from it. A lot of, I think they say the life expectancy of a meth addict is about seven years, but I think it's more the lifestyle that kills you than the actual drug itself. The no food and the insanity. And no water. I wouldn't drink water for five days. But, I want to know just, and I, I know you don't love talking about your family and in, in around this stuff. Yeah, but it seems like important just to know mm-hmm. soulfully. Like out of nowhere, you meet this woman and you start a family. And and I could tell from what I read in the book, you loved your family. I loved my family. I was an alcoholic when that happened. Okay, I wasn't really doing drugs, but then when that all broke up is when I left. And then I didn't want to pretend to be a dad and a junkie at the same time. So I cut every all my children off. The biggest thing about the ice game, I see I've had it happen a million times and I've also I've I've watched and it happens to women a lot, okay? So you'll be partying with a group of girls, you know, if you want to call it that. And then all of a sudden somebody'll just break down and in big soggy tears like you know, somebody died type of tears. There's moments where you remember your children and you won't think of them for weeks or months. And then all of a sudden, and then you get this moment of clarity. And then what happens is it's immediate. You just see people shake it off. They go back and they use immediately. And they usually use a huge dose because it's like, just forget, just forget because it's, you're in this realm and people used to call it the realm which is like, it's like a kingdom and it's really a kingdom of darkness. And I've heard people refer to it as the realm so many times and everybody's playing a character, right? So you reinvent yourself into this evil, larger than life character and everybody's got a nickname in the game. Everybody's got a job. Everybody's got a niche. Everybody's got something they're famous for, you know? And it's really all just a bunch of bullshit and none of those people are your friends at all. And when I get incarcerated later on, I'll tell you about that. So the family breaks up yeah. and then, and, and just so the audience knows you are in touch with your kids now, yeah, which, which is beautiful and, yeah. and just like the most important thing, I think. It was totally restored. So at the end of that, and I, and I tell this story because I want people to know that if you've done something like this, it's not the end and there is hope for restoration. When I was in the middle of the divorce, I actually, I was so strung out. I was going to sign the divorce papers. I was in a bank. We had to be have it notarized. And I ended up saying, I'll sign them if you give me a hundred bucks. And I actually signed away the rights to my children within those divorce papers. Now, this is the thing about that. She was absolutely right for doing that. She was protecting my children. I thank God that that happened. Because she's a good mom. She's a good mom. She's a good mom today. She protected those kids. And now everything today is fully restored. But there had to be a lot of miracles. There had to be a lot of change. And your sanity else. needs to be maintained Absolutely. on a daily basis. There's certain substances I cannot touch. I mean, medically. The life of crime, 
the stuff like that. I'm going to tell the story about the wheelchair just because people ask me about it. And it's like one of the, the worst. There was an old lady on the side of the road. Okay. I like how you start the story. Yeah. There's an, <laughs> this is like the There setup. once was an old lady on yeah, the side of I mean, the road. I mean, this is three o'clock in the morning. Right. And this is Boston born again, by the way, in the book. Okay. So, you know, driving down the road, this lady's struggling to get over the curb in, in the wheelchair. Okay. And then, uh, you know, good Samaritan pulls over. Right. And, you know, I help her up and I'm like, Hey, do you, do you need a ride? She didn't have any money. So I'm like, all right. She's like, I'm going to the store up here. And I said, okay, that's going by my house. And I'm like, I'm about to go on a break. And then, um, and I drive, but I had to go into my house because I had to go get loaded real quick. I was like starting to get tired. So I went in and, uh, yeah. And she, she demanded to come with me and I'm like, okay. And I'm like, I mean, that's how messed up your thinking is. Like, this is a stranger. Just getting high in front of a stranger alone is weird. How old an old lady was she? She was older. <laughs> she was in a wheelchair. Okay. Yeah. And then, I mean, one one thing led to another, and those two crazy kids, you know? One of them being you, and yeah. one of them being the old lady in the wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. So there's a story based on that in the book. It's wild. I recommend you get it. But, uh, yeah, and it's like, and then I remember... Dropping her off after. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Yeah. In the story, you had sex with the old lady in the wheelchair. Yeah. Did you do meth with her? She. I think she took a hit. She took a hit. And did you sit in the wheelchair and she sat on you? No, 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 no. <laughs> but I ended up throwing, I found her ID in the back of the taxi and I threw it out the window. I was so ashamed. Wow. Yeah. Where did you take the old lady? To the store up the street that she was originally going to. You know, and then- uh yeah, it was disgusting. And I mean, it was just like that all the time. It was just meeting people and randomly sleeping with people. I mean, all the time, every single day, you know, and that's just, it's not just me. That's the life. That's the game. If you go see, that's why it's demonic. Because if you go to any city in the United States, the devil sets his carnival up in every major city and in every little town and every little trailer park in between and every trap house looks exactly the same. Tell me about trap house life. I really feel like I missed out on meth sex, by the way. Yeah, you I did. did. I really did. Yeah. Okay, tell me about the the trap house life, because I didn't do any of that. Trap stuff. house life is wild. I mean, it's like around the clock. Nothing ever closes. Trap house is 24 hours a day. It's like Walmart, you know? And um, there's always, there's people selling food stamps 50 cents on the dollar. Well, like, uh, how do you find a trap house, and what... Like your grandparents' house wound up becoming a trap. Just house. follow the smell of anhydrous, man. You know what I mean? In, in Flower Bluff, Texas, I mean, there's one on every block, you know? And, and they're popping up like back here on the East Coast, man. When I was growing up, you never heard of meth. You never saw meth. Meth has spiderwebbed all over the place. And people that I've grown up with are telling me that meth is a monstrous problem in the city of Boston, New York, everywhere. It's a it's 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 very very big in the gay world in New York. Right in New York, it's it's always been more. I mean, again, I'm years and years out of doing drugs. Right. But when I used to do drugs, meth was not in the in the mainstream world in New York. In L.A., right, it was everywhere. Right. Where I was in California, it was everywhere. Obviously, Texas. You watch Breaking Bad or right. or that crate or Spun or any it of was those. it started as crack for poor white people. Right. I remember uh, there's a guy named Cook and he would explain to me, he's like, this, re these recipes, like in the hills of 
these southern states are passed down from father to son, from uncle to nephew, and they're taught like moonshiners, right? And it all changed, and uh, and and it's basically it's a it's a family thing to cook. The family cook. The family cook. And I West mean, Virginia is fucking horrible. West Virginia, the yeah, hill, the blood, Smoky Mountains, yeah, Tennessee, yeah, 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 all yeah. those places are wild, man. And and I mean that's why the the trailer parks is where it blew up first. But now you're seeing rich white kids in in, in affluent communities doing it, you know. And uh, it really opens a portal to hell. That people don't imagine. That's why I have this ministry against crystal meth today, because I think when people get into it, they only see if meth wasn't fun, nobody would do it. If, if it was just your fucking teeth falling out and it was just a life of crime and jails, institutions and death, nobody would do it. It starts off being very fun, very sexual, very exciting. And I mean, look, the book is like this. The best. This is how I describe it. It's like if Die Hard, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Harry <laughs> Potter had a baby on fucking meth. Okay. And that's what it's like. That's a great commercial. That's a great commercial, but I mean, that's what the life is like. It's supernatural, number one. Talk more about like when when do the demon signs on the road start to show themselves? Because this is the period we're talking about. And yeah. maybe the old lady in the wheelchair was the first well, the, yeah. fir the first sign. I mean, the demonic sex is part of it. And I think you start inviting more evil things into your life. I mean, as far as like the supernatural stuff, my house was so bad. You know, we used to have this room that they would nickname the haunted room. It would be like 25 degrees colder or hotter, depending on the day. And it was like bare concrete. The house was like bare concrete holes in the wall and shit like that. This is trap house life, okay? And it's just like, people would show up. I had a free place to do drugs and there was a lot of drugs around. Some stuff was going on at like three o'clock in the morning where people that I'd never met before would come for the first time and they would leave and say, I'm never returning there because they were so fucking spooked. Like there was some wild stuff going on. The it's devil's hour. When I, it's funny that you say everything that you say because I'm, I'm a little bit disconnected from the periods of my own life. Yeah. And when I was, when I was shooting meth, I lived in a garage in a hundred degree heat in LA, no air conditioner, no nothing. And I would just shoot meth and shoot dope. And, uh, it was like, I almost don't, I, I would also eat so many benzos that I wouldn't remember what right. was happening, but it was, it's like shades of serious loneliness and crazy fucking tweaker shit. Grandiosity, man. Right. And then I, you know, so let's set the stage for the next, for the supernatural transformation of the story. Okay. Please. So this is like, I'm experiencing the devil in huge ways. Right. And then, um, all of a sudden it's, it's a balmy October night, 2017. Okay. And I'm driving, I was working way too much is how I'll describe it. And I'm driving down the town was dry. I was, you know, I was, looking around. I only had to make it one exit up the road. So I'm driving and, uh, all of a sudden I wake up, there's a, there's horns honking and stuff. And I'm like, okay, I can make it one more exit. And I just fell asleep and I woke up airborne. I heard a loud crash. I woke up airborne and I remember looking, I come down, all four tires were popped. I'm driving a, a, a crown Victoria police interceptor model. It was an old cop car turned cab. Right. So I start, Arr! 
screeching towards this thing, and I had three flashes. That's what my friend Todd drove too, by the way. Yeah, fucking weird. He was wow. Attic Todd drove the same car. Same car. Yeah, same same. Yeah, car. and I drove like a cop, man. Yeah, yeah. So did he. I it's, was. Yeah. It's a meth thing, I think. It's a meth thing. I mean, and people thought I was a cop because I drive like a cop. I, I show kid. up. I show up out of the blue with a Boston accent, not from there. Nobody knows me, and I'm in like my mid thirties. And look, I I look like a fucking cop. <laughs> With the hat, no, but without no, the hat. Without totally. the hat, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, you know, uh, that rumor went around, around too, you know. So, so. You, you you black out. I'm, I'm, now I'm, I'm wide awake and I'm seeing this pole. The, it's a concrete pole the size of a redwood tree. I sent you the picture of it. So I'm screeching toward it. I had three flashes. It's just like in a movie where they describe where time like slows down. It's going frame by frame. I remember thinking, I was like, oh shit, that's concrete. That was the first one. The second one is I saw, um, I saw the face of my littlest girl. And I remember like having this feeling of peace. And then the third one, I accepted my death. I'm like, I'm going fast. I'm, I'm, not, I'm gonna die. I was pretty sure. And I got right with God at that moment. And I kept my eyes open at impact. And I saw a flash of hot white light. It was the concussion from the accident. And then all of a sudden, the engine's in the front seat. The car, like, tuna cans around me. And um, I actually sawed all five ribs completely in half. They weren't even touching anymore. Oh, my God. My heel was, my sneaker was broken. Because underneath the seats are only, like, that much space in those cop cars. My heel was trapped under the seat. So, I, you know, I'm sitting there. The car's on fire now. Blue oil smoke just billowing into my lungs. I had a superficial cut here that looked like a chainsaw had cut my arm off. There was so much blood. Broken glass in my eyes. So I opened the door. So I took the seatbelt off. I opened the door and I puked out the side of the car. And I got out and I started hobbling around and walking around going, oh my God. Oh my, you're just in complete shock. And then the cops come onto the scene, passed out, go to the ER, you know. And then a week later, I actually like... I had something in my bank bag and I was worried about it. And the car was on fire. I couldn't get you had to meth it. In the bank bag. I don't want to go that far, okay. but I, I just want to say it's something I was concerned about. And well, I, aren't we past the point of statute limitations or whatever? I, I don't want to take the chance, but okay. <laughs> there's but something in the bag. There's something in the bag I was concerned about. I think everybody can draw their own conclusion. So um, the EMT comes in. The whole family's there, girlfriend, ex-wife, they're there, dad's there. Everybody leaves the room for a minute. They just did the x-rays. So the EMT comes in and throws the bank bag at me and hits me and slides down. He goes, hey, we found your ID and your, uh, and your money and stuff in there. And I looked in the cigarette pack and boom, it was in there. And I pulled the IVs out and I hobbled out the side door. And that's, that's how, how, how deep my addiction was, right? Where did you go? I went back home and for two weeks and then I ended up back in the ER. But this is the thing is I took this picture about a week later and, and I believe that God allowed me to go back to the scene of this. I was, I was dropping somebody off to do a drug test right next door to this place a week later. So I take this photo and then upon maybe like a couple weeks later, I'm zooming in and uh, I ended up, I fell asleep and I crashed into the sign at the Christian Sleep Study Center. And the sign had dropped on the top of the cab. God dropped a sign on my head to try to get me to take my foot off the fucking gas. And I didn't listen to him even then. So and then I started going harder. And that's where like 
the real demonic stuff started happening because that was the beginning of a spiritual awakening. I remember in the book the when you're visited by that crazy drugged out lady that you only could describe as a demon. Yeah. How many times do you think you were visited by demons? You're talking about the one at the yeah. office. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just read that on the way over here. And and that was before that was when I first started dabbling and they had blessed the office. And that that girl came in and tried to put her foot on the floor and she could not. I mean How they, do they bless an office? They they take holy water or anointing oil and they say prayers and smudge it over the door frames and stuff. How often do people do that? Uh, usually when people move into a new house and stuff, it's big with Christians, big with Catholics and stuff like that. They want to demon-proof that place. Yeah, and you know what? I didn't believe in that shit back then. I didn't. I'm a believer in God and the devil because I had real-life personal experiences. I've had take-your-breath-away type shit. Sparks flying out of stoves. I mean, tell, wild. Tell, tell us, please. Well, I, I was with a very evil girl. I mean, she had something evil with her. I'll say that. She laughed like the Joker. I met her on a dating site. and Which uh, dating site? Uh, it was one of the just normal ones. I, can I, I think it was like POF or something like that. You know, and I hadn't smoked any ice since like four in the afternoon. It's now like three o'clock in the morning. So she's laughing like the Joker. I take her home anyway because I just don't give a fuck, you know, back then. So we're having the first normal conversation of the night. Sinks behind me stove tops right here countertop goes around like this so she's like right here sinks to my back stoves right here she's got her arms up on the counter like this and she's just talking to me or whatever i saw it didn't make any noise or anything like that it was flashes of like hot white light looked like looked like electricity almost but it was flashes of hot white light and then it just went and then it took kind of a blob form and went around the corner. And I thought I was seeing shit, but it like took my breath away. It was so real, right? And I looked at her and I said, did you see that? And she looked, she had her hands and she goes, no, but I felt it. And her eyes were wide as dinner plates, dude. Like she felt it. I didn't tell her what I was seeing, but she felt something behind her. And then uh, as soon as she said that, a pyre of sparks shot out of this missing knob on the stove. <laughs> And it was like, there was no running water all day. My dad was paralyzed with spinal cancer down the hall. He's got spinal cancer and I'm a full-blown IV junkie and I'm his caretaker. And we had to rewire the stove the next day. What do you think, you were talking about red phosphorus and, and how it becomes this sort of voodoo right. conduit. Do you think that your experiences around demonology demonic forces were a hundred percent connected to the fact that you're ingesting all of this meth yeah i mean a hundred percent and i mean there was there was points near the very end where like i would start keeping the pipe in a box a wooden little box and i started using it as a ceremonial tool to conjure the devil i and i didn't I didn't think of it as the devil, but I just knew I was conjuring something that would come into me that would allow me to act in strange and mysterious ways and let me do things that I normally wouldn't do. What were the things that you wanted to do at that point? I mean, it was like sexually based, you know, and that's what drove me. It was like the sex and the meth addiction, but it was, that's all designed to break your spirit and to totally shame you and make you feel so dirty that you continue on the path. 
And I think a lot of addicts are reading the book. I get messages from Brisbane, Australia, Auckland, New Zealand, South Africa, all over the planet, coast to coast, United States, from people that are all feeling the same way. People saying they cried when they read it. People saying they were triggered. People don't like the cover of the book sometimes. And I'm like, okay, it's, it's a needle and a dough pipe in the shape of a cross. And I said, if you don't like the way that that looks on the cover, you should absolutely, certainly don't look inside. Because it's going to take you, it's going to show you a portrait of what hell really looks like. It's going to show you, yeah, it's, it's about demonic stuff, but it's also the physical manifestation about what that spiritual affliction looks like as far as like the needles, the disease, the cheating on your partner, the fighting. I mean, the full-on debauchery, you know, full-fledged debauchery. How long did you drive the cab? Um, I would say probably like 2017 and 18. I'd say like two years. And how did it, how, what was the worst shit that happened in the cab? I mean, like the cab was really a lot more of a tamer place than you would think. The cab was. The personal car was different because in the cab, you're on full audio visual. Right. There's front and rear facing cameras. So everyone's instructed to be little good little boys and girls. So you're not smoking meth in the cab? No. No. I mean, you take breaks and stuff like that and, and everything like that. But yeah, I mean, you kind of had to be very careful in the taxi cab, you know, even though there was stuff going on, but it was just very silent and it looked like a normal cab ride and it was anything but a normal cab ride. It was almost like the, the, the last place that you had before total bedlam hit. Right. Because and you it, couldn't, you couldn't be the demon kind of thing. No. So like the cab was for earning and the rest of the time during the day was for debauchery. And when you stop doing the cab, like how full on are you at that point? So the cab, after the accident, the cab's gone. All of a sudden, um, what was the cab that you crashed? Yeah. What were the, what were the, uh, I didn't even get a speeding ticket. No consequences. Absolutely nothing. And, and I was just let go from the job. That couldn't have been <laughs> helpful. In your well, they didn't, I don't think that they wanted, like they don't, they didn't, they didn't do a blood draw or nothing. I don't think that they wanted bad press that there's junky cab drivers running around town. Junky cab drivers running around town. How could there possibly right. be? It's not true. Right. So, so uh, you get out of the cab and how do you, also like where does all the sex come from? Like how do you meet women all over the place? Well, you know, so, all right. So this ties into that. I start the, the, the days right after the accident, I start seeing these bright lights like in a stage in my mind like on a black stage and it had like words spelt out and it said find the others and the other one was the big event i know what find the others means like i'm doing that now i'm finding the other spiritually gifted people that came out of that life but the big event i have no clue but i started thinking i was going crazy i thought i had a head injury from the accident and i'm like i'm sane so i'm not telling people about this at this point i mean and then you flash forward a few months and I start going through what they call medically deep methamphetamine psychosis, right? So God gives me this sign that I should stop and take my foot off the gas and I refuse. I call it the Nebuchadnezzar effect. It's a story in the Bible where this king goes crazy. He comes out the other side, he gets healed. And then whatever he saw in between, he's now a believer in God. Okay. That's exactly what happened to me. So I, uh, I start to, it's the women, right? So I start getting these delusions that these girls would just start knocking on the my door. I, I lived in the country club estates. We called it the trap in the country club. Okay. Affluent neighborhood. 
these girls would show up. Uh, my friend called them bitches with bags. They'd show up with trash bags. It's like a signature in the meth game. They would show up and they would, a stranger just knocking on the door. Hey, can I come on in and party? And then I'm like, yeah, cool. And they would usually bring the stuff because now I don't, I'm not earning. And I'm like, David, I'm good looking, but I'm not that good looking. Right? So I start getting this delusion in my head that these women are being sent. Okay. Well, how would they know? How would they know to go to your house? So there's a, well, all right. Oh, how would they know when, so in real life, I mean, just the word of mouth, it's the drug uh, underground railroad. It was a stop on the underground meth railroad. And when you had money, it was flowing. Yeah. And, and, and if you have a place to stay, so, you know, mom and dad, if your kid's got a meth problem, don't let them live at your house because your house becomes currency. The drug dealer will come over or the girls will come over. People will bring drugs, get your kid high, and then- So they have a place to get high. They have a place to get high and stay and leech and eat your food and, and steal and everything else. So, um, you know, and that happens all the time all over the world, you know, and people are taken advantage of because they don't know any better. But- um, so they start showing up in greater frequency, and I start to believe that they're sent. Now, the gang stalking, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Those are some of our biggest videos we do on YouTube is about gang stalking, where people make an enemy in the meth world. And there's a ton of other crazy theories about that. But in my experience uh, in the drug and the meth world, where you'd be targeted by a person or a group, and they would torture you mentally. They would send people, pretend they don't know each other, secret like double talk languages. And I ended up seeing it. it's a real fucking thing. Explain that a little bit more. So like say you took somebody's girlfriend, just hypothetically, or you ripped somebody off on a drug deal. And I've seen stuff like this really happen. They would start like sending people to your house or playing mental games. It's a mental mind game. Ultimately, they want you to like hurt yourself. Okay. And they drive you crazy and they know you're high. Myth is such a psychedelic stimulant. And, and the more you do, the more surreal things gets. It's a lubricant for insanity. Well, it's, I feel like it's more paranoid than psychedelic. Like psychedelic is, is like open. Yeah. And, and that, that thing where you're wondering what the fuck is going on is closed. Yeah. Like, I think it's different. Like, like, which, how, or tell me more about like, I mean, how you describe people, the, the shadow people. Those are, that's the other huge one. It just seems about. like the opposite of psychedelic, like mm. psychedelic, like I get the idea, but yeah. psychedelic to me is an open space where like light is. And it's like, it's not shadow people. It's not like this. It's, it's like the, the bad trip as yeah. opposed to the good one. Right. The shadow people are, everybody knows they're coming to get me paranoia and i know that you suffered well people think shadow people are demons that's what i mean there's dark entities and stuff that start showing up now this is the thing all over the planet people having the same mass delusion describing things exactly the same way it kind of makes you think is there something more spiritual to it I mean, people that have never met, never talked. This is this has been going on way before the times of online forums and everything. And and that's the number one thing I get about the book is and the stories that are in it is, oh my God, somebody's actually talking about this, and I've never been had the courage to say it because they would have called me crazy. Tell me more about some of those things. Like, like I hear what you're saying. Like if people who do meth all see these shadow people. Right. 
how how real is it? Like, is it is it real? And are they demons? And who is coming? What are some of the things in the book that really triggered that response in in the meth world out there? You know, I think the the part where the girl was gyrating like a puppet on the rusty yeah, yeah, strings, yeah, yeah, yeah. like people acting like that, um, people seeing things, That's audible hallucination, demonic thing. yeah, and uh, it's always evil. It's always evil. I mean, I've been around evil situations the whole time. I mean, I was a strip club manager, you know, and there was a part in the book where I was looking across the club and describing the diamond eyes of the the beast in the audience and stuff like, I mean, it's just a wild, wild lifestyle. And it just has, it has evil undertones to it all the way through. Now, when you're in it and you've renounced your family and you've renounced your freedom and you, and, and like when you keep the pipe in the wooden box, right? What it, what's really that about? Well, I mean, it was a ceremonial tool that I was using. When did it become one? Um, I would say like near the middle to the end of before I got clean. Now, this is the thing. Whether you want to believe in the spiritual nature of crystal meth or not, there's a very, very real spiritual underworld lurking just behind the shadows of your little city and town. If John and Jane on Main Street knew what was lurking in the shadows behind their lily white community, they probably wouldn't leave the house. I'm talking about covens of witches. I'm talking about people who are divinators, who speak to the dead, people who claim to see the future. There's real people in real trap houses with real six-foot-tall Santa Muerta statues when they cook the big batches of dope in Mexico and when they do it here in the United States, they hold a ceremonial black mass and they pray over these batches of dope before they're shipped to traps all over the city. So if it's not, if the supernatural is not real, why are people wasting their time putting black juju on this ice before it's shipped all over the city? What have you seen like that? I have seen that. I wrote about it. And, and there was a house I was living at where uh, some, some uh, bad motor scooters, man, they, 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 were, uh, they were the hood fables told by vampires with blood on their teeth. And it's like the, the stories that would go around, they would wear black cloaks. And it was a ceremony. I mean, they're not like big monstrous demons. These are real people saying real prayers of darkness over the batches of dope before it shipped out. So you're getting indoctrinated into that world. Yeah, I mean, I'm rubbing shoulders with everybody in it. And and is that when it becomes clear that this is a ceremonial tool, that I am part of this dark... I could feel it. I could feel the possession of sexuality. Before you even say another thing, Mm -hmm. I want to thank you. Like, I'm not trying to indict you here. Like, this is a story, like, that I think benefits our community and, like, I'm very, very grateful that you're here. So if I'm pressing you for you're shit, okay. it's because I want to hear no, this and, stuff. No, and I talk about this every day on my TikTok. We're a community of people that is literally a movement. It's starting to take off all over the planet. And it's people coming together and telling their experiences. And I'm watching people's lives be restored by talking about this stuff. Stuff that's been hidden in the shadows for years. We were the first people to start. Me, Jamie Tall, Sonia Johnson, we were online about a year ago. The came out on Halloween by chance. I didn't do it on purpose. I, I dropped it and then Amazon takes a couple of days. Came out on Halloween day, the paperback. And we I did my first interview and I met these people that were talking about the spirit of witchcraft in the meth game and, and I was doing it individually and then we linked up and I mean, it, it blew up online. When was the first time you encountered the 
dark magic, witchcraft, that stuff. Because you were just you see, a cat. my girlfriend was a card reader. I mean, there it's it's everywhere. I mean, the supernatural, like the spiritual part, is all over the meth game. It was the whole time. It was the whole time. But there's different people. I mean, I've met Jesus freaks out there. I've met legit Satanists out there. I've met people that could really tell you things before they happen. We've seen wild stuff. But you came in wanting to be Chris Farley, and, and which is like funny and light. And, and you're some kid from Massachusetts. And right. now you're getting indoctrinated into this yeah. dark world. I changed. I changed and I became a very dark character. I was never evil, like as far as hurting people, but I was just very, I, I took meth to a, a point where no human being should take it. I was an eight ball a day meth user. Now I'd spread that around a little bit, you know, it wasn't all me, but I would buy for a long stretch and 3.5 grams a day. And I took it to an extreme. And then I ended up going into deep methamphetamine psychosis. I end up thinking these women are being sent. Then meth psychosis is, I describe it as a snowball that rolls downhill. All of a sudden, I start to believe that I'm in a hidden camera movie. First, it was like just hidden cameras in the walls and stuff. Then I'm like, they're following me wherever I go. I start believing that they're filling me with satellites. Then I believe that I'm in this movie that's the Truman Show reboot. And I actually believe Jim Carrey is an executive producer on the movie. Jim, if you're watching... I'm still waiting on my check because, uh, yeah, I was the real out question. There. You know what the real question is, though? Huh. It's like, when does it stop? Like, how, like, here we are, right. you're, and now you're, you're recording this. Yeah. And, and however many people are going to see it, however many people are going to hear it. Right. And you've kind of manifested that it is a movie. Yeah. Because now you're being recorded. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so, right. so when do you get out of that? thinking because i know you were deep in it you had you would tell talk to your dad about it your friends my about dad it. was i i mean there's a story where the swat team surrounded the house with my dad because tell the story please well i i got out of jail one day i came home and i was desperate i mean this was my reality and i was being tortured by this hollywood machine that in your was, head well yeah, i thought it was my reality but it was in my head so I get out of jail. They broke my seventh floating rib. I came home. I took the bus home and I walked in. My dad was now paralyzed in a wheelchair. He's still working because I'm a junkie and a loser and I can't pay a bill. So I go and get a fillet knife and I come in. You see that big vein on my arm? I put the knife to my vein and I said, Dad, I said, you're going to tell me about this movie right now today. I'm like, I know you're in on this. And I was dead serious. I took his phone and I put it out of his arm's reach. And I said, I need to know. And he's like, Patrick, there's no movie. And he started to cry. He goes, you're really sick and you need help. Those moments came from time to time where I'm like, maybe I'm mentally ill. Maybe he's right. You're like, maybe, maybe this is, maybe that is the truth. Right. And then someone called the police, the SWAT team strands the house. Okay. And this is where it always, it always happened. I finally surrender. My dad's shouting through the window. He's like, he's not, He's not hurting me. He's not hurting me. So I, I go outside and the cops handcuff me and put me in the back seat of the car. So I get in the back seat of the car and uh, and the cop goes and gets a Pepsi and gummy bears out of the house and he starts feeding me the shit with my handcuffs behind my back. I'm like, this is a fucking movie. They take me to the hospital. I'm doing stand-up comedy for everybody. They treated you well. Yeah. I'm, well, and then I'm like, cops don't do this. So this is definitely part of the movie. How do you not get in trouble for something like that? So then um, I'm getting thrown out of every restaurant at this point. 
I'm doing stand-up in the middle of Walmart on the counter. I'm thinking I'm being filmed and I'm doing these epic scenes. So eventually my dad disappears. I thought he went to play golf in Hawaii because he was written out of the script. I mean, this is legit. Because it's deep, deep meth psychosis. Deep, deep. I mean, as far in as you could get. And then uh, that's when the McDonald's shit happened. Was, How are you affording it at that point? I, You know, to be honest, near the very end, I wasn't even using that much. You were just gone. I was just so far spun out that I could use once every four days and it would just make me even worse. But the kicker is, is like, I had enough. They, the cops boarded up the house when it was 110 degrees. Every window is busted out. All the walls are torn down. The house is destroyed. My dad's missing. They, they come with the screw guns. I'm in the bathroom with a needle in my arm. So then, um, you know, things deteriorate. I'm, I'm doing missions now where I'm going out to preach the word of Jesus Christ to the homeless. I'm having major jaw-dropping experiences with the devil. I'm having major, major moments in the trap house where I'd have the blowtorch in one hand and then the flame of God would come and sit next to me. And I would feel this overwhelming feeling of love and just butterflies in my stomach to the point where you'd puke. It was happening all the time. It changed me from the inside out. Okay. This is while I'm crazy. I, uh, one day I walked home. Somebody told me my dad was really dead. It was three. He's been dead for three weeks. Something clicked. I went home and I, and I said, I have to surrender. I drank a bunch of like four locos and passed out on the bed covered in self-inflicted knife wounds. I mean, I was the man from Gadarenes, the demon possessed man. I mean, I, I was tortured. I was wearing swim trunks. The house is just five feet tall of trash and needles everywhere. It's, it's disgusting. And I woke up and looked over on the nightstand. There was a big butcher knife and I looked and I said, okay, I grabbed the knife and I stood up and I said verbally out loud, I said, this ends now. And I stormed out the front of the house. I took a TV that was on the front lawn. I threw it through a closed window. I threw it over the, the neighbor's fence. It hit their house. They ended up calling the cops thinking I was breaking in. I went around the block and I went into a fast food restaurant and I poked my head in the door and I said, this is not a robbery. Everybody get the fuck up out of here. The four employees ran out the back door. I threw the knife on the floor. I went and got me a burger. Do you know why you said this is not a robbery? Because I didn't want to go to jail for robbery. I was just, this was a cry for help. This was me just trying to get arrested long enough where I could get clean in jail. Treatment refused me twice the months leading up to this. The, I was being kicked out of mental hospitals every three days. So as deranged you are, you knew you needed to do some uh, at that final moment. move to get help. It, at that moment, I had a moment of clarity and I'm like, this, I can't do it anymore. It's, it's a very weird moment of clarity though, yeah. to be like, I'm going to go, I'm going to get treatment by going and stealing a burger with a knife at McDonald's. Well, because they, they kept, I would go to the mental hospital and in three days they'd turn me out. The mental health system and the drug treatment facility industry in this country is broken and we need a reform of it. Right. So I went in there and the crime should have never taken place, but I was dying and I risked it all to get clean. When they say going to any length, I went to any length and I don't recommend that to anybody because they charged me with aggravated armed robbery, five to 99, three counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, two to 20 each. That's 156 years stacked in the state of Texas. Well, you went to the only length that you, that, that you were told what to, that they, that was what you were your impulse to do to get right. well was. You didn't know what to do. You did that, and it started you on a path. Right. But you, I mean, like when they say go to any lengths, right? It, it's 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 not usually go no. with take a knife to McDonald's and no. tell everybody to get out of there. And but you're not that's robbing. it. Went it it spiraled so far out of control. It was the only avenue I thought I had at the time. You, it's, it's like we said before we even started. 
it doesn't even matter because it's what got you here. Right. And then I, I'm in Nueces County Jail. The psychosis gets worse as I'm off drugs. I started becoming a Christian during this time, and, and I'm a very different type of Christian. A lot of Christians don't like me, and that's okay. I use a potty mouth, and I have beliefs that aren't of the norm, okay? I believe God loves all people. I don't think he just loves Christians. I mean, I felt the Spirit of God. I met the real Jesus Christ, okay? I didn't see him ever, but I felt it, right? And it changed me. And um, I'm in jail, and I start to have this delusion that they put cameras, the movie put cameras behind my eyes. They could see exactly what I did. And I mean, this is months with no drugs, and I start reading the Holy Bible. I read the New Testament three times. I'm awaiting trial. I'm talking to the weatherman thinking he could hear me on TV. And we're having a full conversation. And I woke up and I was completely healed. But here's the kickers and the miracles start, okay? Unbeknownst to me, my attorney, I won in a lottery, was the number two pay attorney in the city of Corpus Christi. He was a bad motherfucker, man. He looked like Martin Scorsese. I thought he was part of the movie. <laughs> he looked just like him. It's like a fucking movie. Insanity defense gets rejected. Everything falls apart. I get healed. And now I'm realizing, oh man, you're in a lot of trouble. The house is foreclosed on. You're facing a uh, hundred years in prison or whatever. And all the charges are for the McDonald's crime. All of it. Which is not really a crime, really. No, but they tried you to did they, get a free burger. They but. wanted to give me 15 years in prison for this. It was my first felony arrest ever. My, my lawyer was telling me that they wanted to make an example out of me because I was waging war on the south side of town. I was banned from every single business for doing like stand-up, causing problems, like doing these, acting out these scenes for the movie, okay? So he's like, they just don't want to deal with you. They know you're mentally ill and they don't want to deal with this anymore. So they hit you with some very serious charges. I should have got probation, but they wanted to make an example that you can't walk into a public business with a huge machete the size of your arm. Or and scare the Kitchen world. knife. Yeah, and scare terrorize, terrorize the town. I was terrorizing the town. So I go to, I'm about ready to go to trial and I call this guy the night before trial. Okay. And I'm like, hey man, what are we looking at? Now I'm healed just like I am now. And I'm like, are we looking at probation or whatever? This is my first felony. He goes, I'm sorry. I'm like, he's like, you're facing, he goes, they're asking for about 15 years in TDC. I went back and I screamed into my towel, my little square towel I had. The conditions in Nueces County Jail were harsh. It's one of the worst county jails in the country to do time. There was rats in my bed, cockroaches, everything. Okay. So it was hard time in there and I'm getting ready. And I had a moment of clarity again. And I said, the aggregation of every bad choice that I ever made since the time I was 13 years old led me to this moment right here. And now when I got healed, I was a full on believer in God. Okay. And, and I loved him um, because I felt how he felt about me. And he taught me a lot of things in my insanity that I'll never forget. And I remember thinking to myself, if I have to go to prison, I'll go there as a man of honor, integrity, and respect. And I'm going to do the best that I can to bring people to God. Right. I went in through this leaky tunnel the next morning, swinging lights, water leaking out of the pipes. There's 12 of us shackled together, which is like very symbolic later on, okay? And we're walking hand and foot shackles, orange jumpsuits. I'm going to a bench trial with just me and the judge, okay? I walk and I see something up in the distance and I pass it. It's the same make, model, and color wheelchair my dad had when he had spinal cancer in the middle of this tunnel in the middle of nowhere. Was it also the same wheelchair the old lady had on the I, side I of the road? I think it was. It probably was. Maybe that's why I got so excited. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I walk up into the courtroom, 
Martin Scorsese's there. He's mm. like, get in this side room. And it's a movie. It's the Shawshank Redemption. This is the Shawshank Redemption, right? I mean, but this is real life now. Of course. So he pulls me in the side room. He's like, we beat the case. We beat the case. And I said, what do you mean we beat the case? I was like, you told me 15 years last night on the phone. I was at the DA's office last night on unrelated business after hours, like seven o'clock at night. He's got my, his briefcase with my files, with all my medical shit from when I was crazy. The DA caseload in real life had switched that day by chance. And I mean by God, because it it's part of a fucking plan, okay? It switched, and he presents my files. He's like, I got this crazy guy tomorrow at 8 o'clock in the morning. Now, usually in an insanity defense trial, they'll go back on your Facebook for six months. They'll see if drugs are part of your story. Automatically disqualified. They already disqualified me. Um, because of the drugs. Because of the drugs. It's like a drunk driving accident right. or whatever, right? So... He says that the guy goes, yeah, we'll push it through. 1% of felons who try to get an insanity defense in front of a judge get it even heard. 24% of the 1%. So less than a quarter of 1% actually get off an insanity. And just to put this in perspective, Jeffrey Dahmer's insanity defense was rejected because he was too sane. Well, you were crazy enough for it to to work. Right. That was the blessing. It was it. You know, I'm going to see the judge with a full mohawk with soap spiked up. Like I... And I, th- I was a crazy guy. I was, I was crazy thinking I was sane, playing, playing a cra- crazy playing guy. Crazier. Yeah. And you got out of it. I got an NGRI not guilty by reason of insanity. I beat the case with absolutely no criminal record. But here's the kicker. As part of my release, I had to go to a mental institution for the criminally insane. And I had to go for a safety evaluation. I went to Vernon Supermax in Vernon, Texas. It's mental institution for the criminally insane with true blue serial killers. I'm in there with people who drown their children in bathtubs, people who kill prostitutes up and down, you know, the Gulf Coast, Um, the herders of women and children. I was in there with a guy who killed a pastor and stabbed three other people, a guy who smoked the chief of police of his town. Like these are like the worst of the worst, too crazy to go to trial in the state of Texas. And I was now betting down with them. Second day on the tier, they gave me the wrong medication at noon. I didn't take noon meds. And I said, I don't take noon meds. They gave me a bucket of pills and forced me to take them. They were like, you're taking those. And if you don't take them, they shoot you up with them. There's a restraints chair. Do you have any idea of what they were? Um, I have absolutely no clue. All I know is my heart started beating out of my chest and I started drooling literally buckets. I've never experienced anything. And I almost, I thought I was going to die. They dragged me back to my bed and threw me into the bed. And people die in the state hospital system all the time. It's very, very crazy. And I lived there for eight and a half months of my life. Let me ask you this. You know, you had all those years doing math in, in Texas and being on this demon dark path. Yeah. How similar was it in this uh, mental institution? It, I mean, can you picture hearing the hallowed screams of the damned almost all hours of the day? Did, oh. it, did, it, did it affect you in a similar way? Or did oh, you feel yeah. like you were in the same continuum? I, I was around true evil. like, And now I'm completely healed. I think God showed me the demonic realm and then healed me. And then now I can recognize it when I'm not high. You know, I mean, I was in there with a guy who was so dangerous. He was a serial rapist and he had an ankle monitor in inside the walls of the institution. They didn't want to take any chances. Violent sexual thoughts literally every waking moment is what his medical file said. Right. I looked it up online. Scary. Yeah. And um, so I get moved to San Antonio State Hospital. They could have held me 99 years. I had to prove my sanity at this point. 
So what happened next was uh, I started taking on an evil, corrupt system. People would piss their pants and shit their pants, and because of clients' rights, they wouldn't, they couldn't force them to change. But they wouldn't, they wouldn't bribe them with an ice cream sandwich. Either. Total abuse, sexual assault, patient on patient crime wasn't prosecuted by police. You 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 lose all your human rights. Um, I saw a woman get almost brutally murdered underneath the tree outside at San Antonio State Hospital, and she was beaten by a big male patient and he was kicking her right in the face over. She was in a wheelchair for about a month after that. I started taking journals and writing names, dates, times of patients down. I started recording everything. I ended up getting uh, the client's rights handbook and reading it like a maniacal genius. And this genius. is your brain is coming back. Oh, I'm and, fully and, good. And, and, you're, and you recognize how to be on the side of good. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and I became like a, a warrior for people who didn't have a voice. So one day, everybody, I, I had my cell phone. My mom took the camera out. I found a loophole in the, they had to let me have a device. It was part of my client's rights. My mom gets the camera taken out. She sends me a phone. Now I've got Facebook. I've got uh, Google, YouTube, everything. Outside access to the outside world. Messenger, everything. This lady one day came up to me. The, everybody's banging on the windows. You have to go to a happy place when you live there. You have to look at the floor and you have to imagine yourself somewhere else because the speech you hear alone will drive you mad. Okay. It's, I mean, it's the craziest conversation you've ever had in your life on acid times 10. It's always about something involving children or murder or this and that. It's always wild. These, I mean, that's why I think it's demonic. Like these schizophrenic people that were in there were talking about the most vile things, the most vile, the human behavior, despicable behavior you have ever seen. And it's co-ed. Just use your imagination what's going on. And um, I start to lose it one day. And if I lose it or raise my voice after beating a case in insanity, it's six more months. Six more months. If they give me the drugs, six more months. So the lady comes up. She goes, you're getting medicated. That's it. I'm like, I fucked up. I'm like, I just fucked up. Whatever reason, she had a heart and she came back. She goes, I'm going to give you one chance to calm down. Right. And then she looks at me. And this changed the course of my whole life. She goes, if you don't like the way things are here, Mr. Durkin, she said, uh, I suggest that you write a letter and I will personally take it up to the White House. It's where all the top brass in the administration was at. And she would personally hand deliver it to him. So I sat down and I wrote a, a four page letter in five minutes that ultimately set me free. That's why I wrote the book too, was because I saw the power of the pen and the spoken word. I was like, if it can set you free from a 99 year psych hold in an institution where they get paid $1,100 a day and sell you pills, then it can take you around the world and change the world. How did it set you free from the place? So in the letter, I said, I am well-educated. I am not crazy. Your doctors have taken me off all but you medications. you were not well-educated. No, 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 I, I wasn't. But you know what? I picked up a lot of knowledge on the playing. way. I'm just playing. <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm well-spoken. I had a business career. I told him kind of who I was. Right. And I was like, check my files. I have a cell phone that I have in here legally. It's in my file. I said, I have names, dates, and times of all these crimes. X, Y, Z started naming stuff. And I was like, I have all of this. And I'm going to start to release my journals to the local and state media. So the longer you keep me here, the longer I'm going to be a major problem for your so big like, corrupt we don't, system. we don't want to deal with you. Yeah. But then there's a lot of red tape involved. They had, they had agreed to let me go after the first letter. There was a secret meeting held. Staff was friendly with me. They're like, you shouldn't even be here, man. Right. So I made friends with like the low-level staff members. They were One guy was like, listen, man, that letter that you wrote, they had a secret meeting up at the White House, and they moved me to the Fannin unit, all male, full of child molesters and murderers and stuff. 
And I thought it was a punishment for the letter, but in reality, there was actually less problems on that unit, and they didn't want me to see things to make a problem out of it. So I, I ended up writing 12 letters in all because I was in this holding pattern, and everywhere they moved me, something would pop up. And then my roommate escapes. It's the final straw. So if you get on YouTube and you YouTube San Antonio, like the city, State Hospital Escape, one of those top three videos right there, it'll have the one with the kid with the big puffy hair. He's a guy. He was my roommate. Threatened to kill his family a few days before the hospital covered it up. They covered up all these molestation things that were happening with a patient that had HIV. I uncovered that. I was bribing like the victims with sodas and uh, bags of candy my mom would to send get me. To get the truth. I'd say, give me your sister's phone number. I'd call the sister. I'd be like, listen, you're going to have to believe me. I'm not crazy. I need you to call the hospital and verify that this, this, and this happened. Adult Protective Services comes swooping in. They're getting more mad. So you're becoming this incredible power of good. Yes. And I bet you it felt really good after all those years of being incredibly on the other side. Of it. Yeah, it was, the, you know, I went from living a terrible life to actually like, I, I, I felt like I was making a difference on something, even though it was extremely scary because they they could have kept me my the rest of my natural life. So he escapes and hops the wall and he told me he was going to do it. And I'm like, you hear so much crazy shit. You don't believe you don't anything. Happen, yeah. yeah, he's like, I'm going to go get this 20 grand, man. I'm like, yeah, fuck you. You know what I mean? So he hops the wall. He gets two mental patients that have the mind of an eight-year-old, forms a human ladder and climbs up and walks off the property. They tell the cops, but they don't call the media. So the city of San Antonio, the citizens don't know there's an escaped mental patient on the loose. I get on my phone like an hour after it happens, and uh, I get on there with Ken's Five. Okay. And I'm like, do y'all want a story about an escaped mental patient? The guy, whoever was on the other end messages back and goes, you can't have a phone in the state hospital. So quick thinking, I dropped the GPS pin from inside the Fannin unit. All of a sudden a message comes through. I, I need the guy's name. We got to verify the story. They ran one story that night at 10. And I'm like, I got these motherfuckers, man. And then next morning they ran a big expose. And that's the story that you will see online. San Antonio State Hospital Escape. My social worker came down that Monday. They locked the gates of the facility for the first time in years. And she had a stack of folders. And she goes, Mr. Durkin, my job is to get you out of here today. Wow. And they just had enough of Patrick Durkin, Boston 2%. And they just, you know, they were... They wanted me gone. And within 30 days, I was home. I was a free man with no criminal record. I've since, you know, I wrote the meth Bible when I was homeless and clean. And you never picked up meth again? Never again. When you left that place, did you, were you tempted to do anything? Listen, I got robbed for all of my inheritance. And the last of it was for $11,000 30 days before my release. I came out on the streets homeless and clean with a duffel bag full of dirty mental institution clothes. I, st I started writing the meth Bible in a trap house hotel called the Knights Inn where I used to do a lot of dirt. Two weeks after that, I'm in the middle of the second chapter. I move into an Oxford house. I start writing the book. and then Where I was it. that in Texas? It's in Corpus Christi. I was back in the city. It all happened homeless and clean. I could have gone back to the crime life anytime I wanted and had more money. How was the Oxford house? It was structured and a lot of rules, but really good. And, and uh, I, I just lived there for like a month and a half, two months. The drug rehab center that, I, that refused me treatment twice, I ended up working there when I got out. I was just, just to have it as a cool story, I got a job there. Right. And then um, I ended up finishing the book on this canal house on Padre Island, right? I could dive off. I did. I, di I dove off the back porch. I'd be writing 14 hours. I'd take a break. I'd jump off the porch into the Gulf of Mexico. And then I came to Washington and completely changed my life. I'm an online recovery advocate. 
I'm an author of a book that's being read in seven countries right now. I have an amazing day career where I've done, a, I, I estimate about $7 million in sales in three years. What are you selling? Um, I mean, I, <laughs> exactly. No. And you know, I, uh, I help a lot of people get off meth all over the world. And I'm no, watching. I mean, you are a conduit and you are proof that you can go from the darkest place to, right. to a, a light place. And, and here's a fucked up question. Uh-huh. When you get to the craziest places of paranoia, right? Yeah. And you have an aside where you, you'll say to the camera, oh, Jim Carrey, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Where does it live in your head? The deepest old school fucking. Like, how does it resonate with me now? I mean, like, once in a while, it probably feels like you're still in a movie. No, I've come to terms with it. I'm going to tell you what my thought on it is. I believe, because I know me, I shouldn't have been able to write that book. I shouldn't have. I have like a sixth grade education. How did you do it? I sat down and started typing and I read, I wrote a 716 page book. I literally started it January 1st of 2020 and I finished it on, on July 1st, 2020. I never went back and changed anything. I was on Facebook live and you stuff. You didn't right? edit a bit of it. No, I, a lady edited the book for me. And, 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 who, and who, did you self-publish it? I did. I, I, I was shopping it to traditional publishers, but it's too long of a book because it's too thick to, for them to make money. And it's too fucking crazy. Like they looked at it and they're like, this is too wild. There's never been a book like this written. So there's nothing like it. It's too dangerous. It's a great accomplishment. It's I a put great it out. book. Dopey Nation, you got to check it out. The the Meth Bible story of Fire and Ice? No, it's Fire and Ice, Thank the you. Meth Bible on Amazon.com. The audio book just dropped too. And right now it's free. So just search. I paid for the audio book. Oh, you did? I did. <laughs> it's it Just search the Meth Bible on Amazon.com and it's all right there. And uh, yeah, it's a wild book. It's amazing that you sat down and wrote a book like that. Who who edited it? Here's the here's the thing. The lady who edited it, I I was releasing short stories from inside the institution. There was so many people that wanted to edit it for free because the stories were good. I write the full length. I start sending it chapter by chapter as I go. The person who I picked was from Corpus, and I messaged her when she was on chapter two. Her name is Sandra Lee, and I said, Sandra, I'm like I saw that you work at this so and so place on your profile. She's like, yeah. And I'm like, my dad worked there. Okay. The character in the book's based on my dad. Okay. Based. And then um, she's like, what department? And I say, well, he was in accounting. And she goes, what's his name? And I told her his name. And she said, oh my God, I'm the person who replaced your dad wow. when he had spinal cancer in real life. She edited that book for free. Wow. Yeah. And had you written before you got into the uh, mental institution? No, I found a gift to write at 37 years old after I went crazy and I was never able to do it before. Incredible. Yeah. There's something happened in my brain that opened it up to something in the ether that I can't explain. And where do you see, where do you see demons now? I don't see New York City. Yeah, New York City. You see a lot of them <laughs> in my in my dad's building. Right. No, I, I just you know, and uh I'm I'm involved with a lot of things that are spiritual and uh you know, I'm a spiritual mentor for a lot of people. Demons don't really bother me too much anymore, but they you know, the devil definitely comes after people around me for sure. No, I had one weird moment uh when I was using I had a friend who was really, really interested in in demons and he would talk to me about it all the time. Right. And um, we talk about the devil all the time. Yeah. And uh, and I didn't grow up with God or the devil or anything. Yeah. And um, I was living and I was shooting a ton of uh, heroin on the Lower East Side. Yeah. And I got it in my head 
that if I went into my closet and sat down and asked the devil to come, right, he would. That's, I asked that old lady in the wheelchair to come too. Did did she? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so like right. I, I and I and I got really scared, and mm-hmm. and I I knew that if I did that, the devil would come, right, and and maybe I would make a deal or whatever the case may be, right. And I opted not to do it, right. But that was like, there's lines right between this world and that world, right. And then there's and then the further you get away from that world, there's all these buffers, yeah. But when you're there. You're there. Right. And it, it's terrifying. There, I was at a crossroads moment like that. I was like, I could go all the way with God. I could go all the way with the devil. And there's a story like that in the book. But that's for y'all to decide. Do, have you seen Beyond the Veil? What's your experience? You know, that's what I leave it up to, what people to believe for themselves. I really got to go. Well, I'm glad you came. But I love you, man. And I, I will be so grateful to be on the same show as Nikki Six from Motley Crue and Jamie Lee Curtis, who Listen, played Laurie Strode in Halloween. But come on. the bottom line is... You smoked them on the show. So thank you. Oh, come on. Thank you. (laughs) All right. That's Boston 2%. I I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. Please send in your voicemails, your emails to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. People will get socks. I need to issue an apology uh, for last week. I had my friend Jessica Kent on the show to talk about her situation and I just heard from so many people who were upset with that story that I just want to apologize and say that I don't know both sides of the story. I think it's very important to have both sides of the story. I'm not going to go back and get the other side. I just want to say that I wish I had. But I still love Jessica and appreciate her coming on the show to telling her story. As for Boston, like, I don't know, man. His story is nuts. And we're going to have him back whenever he can come back out east. His meth shit is crazy. And as we know, meth makes you go insane. And a person who's been in Dopey Nation since, you know, we started, Don. Don has struggled. He's been in and out over and over again since 2015. He's struggled with every substance you can think of. And... He's a great friend of the show. He's helped the show. He's he's sold ads for the show. He's been on the show over and over. He is in and out, and now he is back in recovery. And we love Don. So here he is. Don back on the show. Dobby Dobby Dobby. Dobby Dobby Dobby. Dobby Dobby Dobby. Dobby Dobby Dobby. Dobby 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 On the phone. Is dopey legend Don. Welcome back to the show, Don. Hello. Yo, what's happening? Thanks for having me. Dude, Good to be back. And and I say dopey legend because you've brought the dopey time and time again, starting with stealing a thousand Vicodins to last time, relapsing in Michigan, crack, heroin, fentanyl. And it hasn't been an easy road. Is it hard for you? to keep talking about relapse after relapse on our humble little show. I mean, you know, it's always an honor to be on Dopey for sure. So, you know, it, it's it's more of a, it's exhausting just to, to live it, I suppose, uh, you know, <laughs> yes. in, in reality, you know, and be at, at meetings and you know raise my hand, you know, anyone under 30 days surrender tokens. It's like, I've gotten to the point now where um, I typically don't stand up because I just have become that person. And like with, 
you know, with, with 12 steps, it's like people really give a shit if you're going to the right meetings and it starts to feel like you're just wasting people's time at a certain point. Um, and I've, I've definitely felt like that at times, but I think people know that, you know, I, 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 I am earnestly trying and I have been earnestly trying. Um, but yeah, it's exhausting, man. It's exhausting. How big a component is shame? Uh, it is a, a huge component. I mean, it's, it's, it's a component in that regard and just in terms of affecting and motivating my, you know, my, my everyday life. I think I'm in a really good place right now as of the last couple of weeks where I've been able to move beyond it for the most part. Um, I'm in a place of acceptance with it. Uh, and really, you know, I was telling you, I was talking to you last night at the gym. That's been one of the biggest things that's really helped get me out of the, the shame spiral funk of, you know, how did I do this again? You know, new IOP, like threatening getting out of kick out of the house and all this stuff um, has been, has been exercise. It's been getting back to the gym. It's amazing. Like what that can do for perspective and, you know, endorphins are the best, the best chemical. Uh, in my opinion, a good some good twenty minutes of good cardio uh, is neck and neck with a sh- with a, with a sh- you know a sweet bowl. I, well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> it's as good as I can do right now. <laughs> but, right? But, and back in the day, you were the first time you came on. Chris was alive, and you were on methadone. Uh, you've obviously struggled over the years with opiates, and crack, and coke, and and speed balls, and then. Lately, it's been meth. When did you turn the corner from all of those substances just to crystal meth? Uh, well, you know, it's it's kind of been like the story of my life, just trying to make different substances work. And I think it wasn't actually originally meth. It was this time around, probably a year and a half ago, it was ketamine. That's what, that's what really took me out. Um, and then the meth just kind of became... Uh, looped into it as well because I knew that there was meth in the in the ketamine. Um, but part of it is is living in LA. You know, it's big out here in California. Meth is everywhere. Um, and yeah, I had never, you know, growing up on the East Coast and and in New York. Actually, I have a funny meth story. Living in New York, I'll tell it real quick. I was on my way to a meeting, 9:30 a.m. Perry Street. It was December. There's snow on the ground. So it was like 2016. I was a block away from Perry Street in probably a similar situation coming back from, you know, really trying to be sober. And uh, I walk by a bar and at my feet is a bag of meth. And I had never done meth before, but I I just, I knew what it was just from, you know, from looking at it and uh, immediately went to my apartment uh, in Hell's Kitchen and, uh, you know, skipped the meeting and and put it in a spoon and and injected it and spent the next five days um, creating sores in my mouth by <laughs> rubbing my tongue against it and trying to pretend I was asleep next to my girlfriend at the time. Um, it was, it was, it was both the best and the worst. Um, so that was really my only time, uh, you know, doing it was like 2016. So it's a really long winded answer to your question. No, that's um, crazy. It's though. just, it's just around. That's so crazy. Yeah. That, is that, is that, that wild? that the first time you did it, you found it on the ground and you ran home and shot it. That's fucking... Yeah, bro. Amy Dresner once told... That's the type of drug addict I am, bro. I know. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> Amy Dresner once found, told a, a famous story of she was in recovery and she found a bag of meth, but she was in recovery and she threw it down the toilet. It's like, it seems like there's bags mm. of meth lying all over the place. Um, well, I actually found another bag when I was, when I was at, uh, when I was fucked and came out to sunny Southern California to go to Aloe. Um, it's for treatment. I was in sober living in Silver Lake and I was like a month clean and I just gotten privileges to like leave on my own. I walked down to uh, to Seven Eleven, which was down the hill, and stumbled on a bag of meth as well. And it was probably the first time that I really remember actually picking up the phone and calling my sponsor before using. Because every other time it was used, and then maybe call the sponsor later. You know, when I got sober again. But I actually, I had enough program in me um, and was feeling good enough to where I because I, I played the tape through. I was like. Wait, I did you do this right now? Did you do it or I you didn't, didn't do it? Do it? No, amazing. I didn't do it. That's amazing. No. Um, I, I picked it up and I looked at it and I, 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 I gave it to a homeless person. <laughs> wow, that's a very generous, very generous uh, contribution to his life. I'm sure. I'm sure you, you set back. I'm sure you set back his sobriety like ten years. But do you right? think? Do you think? I remember you classically got the big sponsorship to Aloe, and you. Succame, I don't know if succame or succumbed is probably the word to kratom really soon after. Did you ever get off the kratom? Um, yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, I actually got on uh, subs to get off the kratom, which is crazy. And then you got off the subs, and how did you get onto the? Are you still on the subs? Still on the subs. Still on the subs. How did you get exposed to the ketamine? Um, so this is a wild story through work, you know, part of my job is like going all over LA and talking to business owners. And, uh, while I was in one said business, I was in a smoke shop talking to the owner and, uh, and standing by in periphery, uh, was it, was a, a, a young dude, probably my age. And he listened to me, talk to the guy and the guy shot me down, but he was like, yeah, I might be interested. So we, we chatted and come to find out that he, had moved to LA 13 years prior from Detroit to get sober. So very, you know, similar story. I did the same thing four years, before, you know, four years ago. Um, and fast forward a week, he we decided we we're going to go to a rave because he was in 2018. He made like millions of dollars throwing raves. Wow! And bought a condo in West Hollywood. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, and then so he was going to we were going to go downtown LA to a rave, and he was going to connect me with you know people that he knew to use, you know, the stuff that I sell or whatever. And, um, and I go to his house beforehand to, to, to kick it. And we're going to go down together and I show up and on the table is white lines. And I'm like, I'm like, what's up, dude? I thought you were sober. He's like, Oh, it's ketamine. He's like, it's fine. It's not addictive. You know, um, I do it like it's therapeutic. And I had known a guy in AA that I met years and years ago has become a close family friend who did ketamine therapy and it like cured his depression. So, that was enough for me to be like, yeah, let's go. And, uh, dude, it was, I mean, it was, it was the first few times, probably the first month, month and a half. And I don't mean to like glorify, but I had a, a, a number of spiritual experiences on, on it. And, uh, it was, it was, it was fabulous. It was working for me. And that's typically what happens. Like I'll find a substance and it'll work for a little bit until it doesn't. Cause I just abuse the shit out of it. And, uh, so it stopped working. Right. And then that's actually why I brought the, the other the, the method was because it was it can be a bit of a downer and i needed to, to be up i needed to work i needed to move and groove so 
at, towards the end, I was doing lines of, um, of meth, ketamine, coke, and Xanax. All together? All together. I thought yeah. you can't absorb Xanax if you snort it, though. Well, you can't, but this was these were these were press pills with fentanyl in them, so that was part of it. Too. <laughs> it wasn't really Xanax anyway. It was really it was really <laughs> fentanyl. Um, this yeah. this dude treated you like you treated the homeless person you gave the meth to. It's not cool. You fucking are in uh, early recovery. He's like, yeah, I do a little ketamine for depression. You seem a little depressed. You're like, I'm very depressed. It's like, how fast are you on the, the ketamine? And how much time did you have when, when you walk into his apartment? Uh, I mean, I was living in a sober house. I had probably like four five months. That guy should be ashamed of himself. We should get him on the wow. show. Like, I, that's not I good. Mean, that's not good. He might be. He would be good on the show. He's got some stories. I mean, he's he's an interesting character. He owns. He now owns a, a record shop in West Hollywood. Um, actually, I like. He talked about it for months. He's like, "I'm buying the store. I'm buying the store." I was like, "Yeah, whatever." Because he says all sorts of shit. And he actually bought it. Now he owns it and he runs it. I'm like, "Wow, okay." Now um, let me I ask you this. So let me ask you this. Yeah. Did he get the ketamine prescribed to him for depression? No, no, he was getting it through the rave scene. But you know what? You want to know what's funny is that shortly after I did that, I wound up reaching out to a therapist uh, to do EMDR therapy for trauma because it's I know people it's worked for. And the therapist, I shit you not, talked me into doing ketamine therapy. So I was like, okay, yeah, of course, absolutely, let's do it. And she, this is how they did it with me. They literally shipped it to my residence. They shipped. The K to the pharmaceutical grade K to my mailbox at my home. And then I was supposed to bring it to her and do it in her presence, like, you know, once a week. And naturally, you know, I never spoke to her again. And it was like a, a huge come up because I didn't even pay for it. It was no copay. I couldn't Shut believe it. Up. I was like, this is amazing. Shut it's actually up. a miracle. I haven't tried that again. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, so yeah. you wait, hold on. You go to the therapist. You say, I want EMDR yeah. for trauma. She says, I have a yeah. better idea. Ketamine is more effective. You say, fantastic. She ships you some, doesn't charge you for it, and you never go back again. Correct. That's incredible. What were some of the spiritual yeah. benefits of ketamine that you experienced? You know, so what it, I'm like a huge music fan, and it would, it would enhance music in a serious way. So it also, it also had to do with the time period of my life. Okay. So when I got, when I started really doing it, uh, was I just moved out of sober living into, that's a whole other story. Moved in with this woman who used to be on a famous show who was like, you know, crazy in her own right. But, but I, I had my own space now because I'd spent the previous six months sleeping next to a grown man and sober living. So now I had my own space, you know, in a cool part of town. And, and this sounds so so lame, but I had this amazing desk. They had gotten me this desk from like her boyfriend's sister's house. And it was like this old um, like artist desk. And I just remember sitting at my desk and, I, and we could smoke in the apartment. So I was like, I had my ashtray, I was smoking cigarettes, had my work stuff out. And, and it was uh, in front of a window that overlooked, you know, whatever. And I remember just sitting there listening to music and I had just found a new album that I was like in love with, this band Mount Joy. Who actually the lead singer is in recovery who, would, who might be good on dope yeah, i reached out to him on instagram but i never heard back but um 
So I found this new album that I was like obsessed with and it like talks about, you know, addiction, recovery, like, and it's just, I was really feeling it. And so it really enhanced the music in a, in a real way. But I was also on an upswing in my life, you know, where I was, I just started seeing a new girl, work was going well. Um, but this, so I think this, the spiritual experience of it was it made me feel even better about myself. And then there were some crazy visuals and people know about, you know, K-holes and things like that. It would, it would be a K-hole ask where there was, I remember one instance in particular, I was like sitting at the desk and, and it was just so euphoric because that's what I always chased in drugs was, was the euphoria. That's why I loved like OCs when they first came out. It was that euphoria. And, um, I just remember sitting there and visualizing, um, a giant, uh, like cylinder object and on the cylinder were like faces representing different souls and it wasn't human it was like it was humans and it was all sorts of different shit and it was like it represented the universe and god was just this light that would shine and it would shine on different faces at different times and so that was sort of like to me symbolize what life was it was just like uh you're a you're a you know we're a light of god if you will or, or a light of the universe and then I would have these weird instances on it where I would literally feel or visualize like an electrical current, like running out. So like I would be in the middle of doing something and anyone who's done a invented a K-hole knows what it's like. You get like time stops and you get yeah. totally lost. Yeah. And I would feel like I, like I had to complete the circuit. It, it just, it broke down life to like a sort of minutia that, was really enjoyable and really euphoric that like, you know, not on it. I don't feel and don't realize, right. you know what I mean? Right. Um, so anyways, yeah. How that, does it that go? That was sort of the spirituality. Yeah. It's, I mean, ketamine is like incredible, crazy drug. I, I don't know how people do it for depression and then don't do it. It seems like something you need to keep doing. What, what? Well, when you do it, when you do it therapeutically, you do it over the course of eight weeks. Um, and you do it like twice a week, I, but I would be depressed when the eight weeks ended. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that would be, depre right. that would be depressing for me uh, at the end. of Right. It. But, uh, of course, what, what happens in your non-prescription crazy ketamine run that makes you turn to this cocktail of fentanyl K fucking <clears throat> meth and Coke? I mean, dude, it was just all about trying to manage the way that I felt. So it was, it was trying to be up enough to where I could work for like days on end because I have a, you know, I have a demanding job, but also feel euphoric enough to want to do the work and then be like chill enough to talk to people. Like just, you know how it is, like just constantly trying to manage the way I felt artificially. Now, and hold then up. that's just the point that it got to. Hold up for one second. When you have a concoction like that concoction, is someone selling it to you pre-mixed or are you buying all the components separately? I'm buying all the components <laughs> separately from, from the same gentleman that bought, that bought me, that, that, that turned me on to it initially. It's like we've created a, a patented blend of ketamine, meth, <laughs> fentanyl, and Coke, um, it's funny because, like, I'm sure that that mix is called something to somebody, right? Some fancy name, like you know, pixie dust or fire dust or some shit. No, 
Right. Right. Yeah. They're, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, it's a weird combo though, because meth and Coke don't really go together. I don't, I don't know why I was throwing that in. Um, but, uh, yeah. So anyways, that's for a little extra up. And then I spoke to Don, I spoke to Don, like you were in meth hell trying to get help and, and starting to suffer insane paranoia and I, I, I wanted you to check in, and then we had this guy, Boston Born Again, on the show this week, and I figured your meth uh, experience was very relevant for this show. So why don't you walk us through your... Fu- I mean, because I know it's been hell, this meth psychosis period. How, how has it been... How did you get there? How has it been going, and how have you been dealing with it? Oh, man. I mean, dude... It's, it's been, it's been a journey. Yeah. I had never really dealt with uh, psychosis before in my life. And, um, so it's been a new thing. And for anyone out there who, you know, has experienced it, um, you know, and you'll hear about it, uh, this week from Boston born again, who, whose book I started to listen to and who Dave and I both agree is a, is a bit too descriptive, but, um, interesting nonetheless. <laughs> um, um, but, uh, Dude, it's, it's just, it's crazy, man. It, it, like ketamine, I, I truly believe that it opens up uh, a gateway inside of our brains that exposes us to other dimensions. You know, it exposes us to things that are always happening around us, but we're not aware of. Right. They're beyond our perception. And so it, it opens that stuff up. And sometimes it can be really cool and trippy and psychedelic and whatever. And then other times it can be fucking scary, especially with uh with math because it's so you know it's demonic it's evil it's uh you know boston born again you i guess talk about the red phosphorus in it like it literally you know it just and i'm already like a very conspiratorial yes uh or aka critical critical thinker um yes that uh that kind of sees through the bullshit and so you know i think i think it's uh it's being you know the streets are being flooded with it because they, you know, they want people to, to tap into that stuff. Um, cause that's, you know, the, the, the all that sat- satanic stuff that's, you know, that's, who's running the world, you know? Um, but anyways, we don't need to get into all that, but the, 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 the best way to, to, you know, to sort of break away from that par- paranoia and craziness is just not to fucking pick up. And that's, that's what I've had to focus on. And that's what I've done essentially over the last few months um, with a few slip ups here and there, not even here or there, like two over the last, like maybe three and a half months. Um, and, uh, and, um, I'm feeling mostly better, but I mean, this is, this will be funny to some people, but it was like my life up until last weekend. I couldn't spend the night at my girlfriend's house, uh, because I was afraid that she was going to offer me up as a, uh, as a sacrifice, as a human sacrifice to who, um, to to a certain order she's like an actress and you know the that whole group that you know kind of runs all that stuff wait your girl um, is your girlfriend an actress yeah is it Catherine zeta jones close is she a very famous no. actress <laughs> no dude she, i mean she she she's famous she's famous and or she 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 had some success in columbia and and now she uh she wait 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 she wait, wait. Here. is it Penelope Cruz? It's Sofia Vergara. Is it really? 
finally, your ship has come. Your ship has come in, and definitely avoid staying at her house. I want to ask you this Sugar question. Mama. I want to ask you this question really quickly before, because I know you need to yeah. go. When you, because yeah. Boston Born Again was talking about the psychedelic aspect of meth, and I was saying how yeah. how psychedelic isn't the right word because psychedelic is so big no. and open and expansive, and meth isn't like that. Meth is like the evil version of that. Like, how do you Correct. see it? Is it psychedelic or is it? Is there another word? Is it just demonic? It's demonic, 100%. 100%. Um, yeah, it's totally demonic. I think the red phosphorus piece of it is uh, is definitely a real thing. That, 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 but, but yeah, it's absolutely demonic. It, I wouldn't say it's psychedelic in any way, shape, or the only The only way that it's psychedelic, the only thing it has in common with being psychedelic is that there's visuals involved. But they're not like trippy, fun, feel-good visuals. They are like you're seeing, you know, other dimensions you're seeing entities you're seeing extra you're seeing all sorts of shit and then you hear all sorts of shit another kind of funny story i was telling you i was at my you know my sober living a few weeks back and uh was certain that there were people coming to get me and i i saw them run by the house and so i had to call you know i called the police naturally um and five minutes later i shit you not 10 police swarm my sober house from both the front and the back and i have to shoot i have to assure them everything's okay and shoo them out quietly so that the other people living there don't know don't notice because i i didn't want them to know that i was tweaking and somehow only one guy knew that the police had been there this was at like four o'clock in the morning um and then i wound up calling him again that night i mean it's just insanity it's it's just crazy it's not reality it's and that's why it's demonic because it's so fear-based well you called me right 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 can you can you talk about that for a second how the fear base is what demonism really is about it's that fear like that yes. you're shaken to the core and and it's really the absence of love because it's only fear yeah there's no love you think everyone is out to get you don called me scared the shit out of me i was walking the dog I was desperately trying to help you get into treatment. You were in a taxi yeah. on your way to treatment. And I was like, dude, he was like, you were like, the driver's going to do something to me. They're going to do something to me at the treatment center. I was like, dude, you got to stop. You got to pretend like yeah. it's okay. And next thing I know, <laughs> you went to the treatment center. You left because you were sure they were going to get you. You were sure the driver was going to get you. It had you in its clutches. Um, would you say that time away from it has relieved the de a lot of the demonic stress or is it still there a little bit? It's still there a little bit. There's, there's, there's some left over, but it's, it's gone for them. It's, it's mostly gone. It's mostly gone. And, and again, I think exercise has helped with that. I think talking about it has helped with that, but, but yeah, on that, in that instance where I called you, I literally, I mean, that that's a whole story, but just a piece of it. I, I had taken uh, an Uber two and a half hours all the way up to Santa Barbara to, to check into a treatment center. The Uber drops me off who I was sure was like a fed and I could hear the police radio, whatever. Yeah. And I, it's at the bottom of this hill and I take my suitcase and my yoga mat, and my backpack, and it's like three different houses and they're, they all look empty. So that, that first of all, I'm already like paranoid, but then that was weird. And then the two guys that I talked to, one of them looked high and they were like, we're just going to take you into the intake room. We're going to ask you a couple questions and then you're going to go to sleep. And when they said I was going to go to sleep, 
that was my cue. And I was like, okay, you know what? I think, I think I'm good. Thanks, but no thanks. And I ran back up the hill and I couldn't get service on my phone to book another Uber. And so I had to stop traffic. I literally stopped traffic and this, uh, this woman in a pickup truck picked me up and she's like, she's like, what are you doing? What's going on? I was like, I'm, I'm in trouble. I need to get away from here. Can you help me? She's like, yeah, hop in. And so I threw my stuff in her, in the back of her truck. Part of me was thinking that she was in on it too. I was afraid that like I'd made a grave mistake getting her in her car. Um, she was an ex-trominer, so she kind of understood. She drove me like 10 minutes away to a church. I called another Uber, skipped on that one because I thought they were shady, called the lift, took the lift two and a half hours back. That's when I called you. Went to Aloe, right? Southern sunny California, fucked Aloe. They wouldn't take me in at Aloe because they said I was medically unfit. Because when I walked up, I was sure that I saw someone, one of the people that worked there, I thought he had a gun on him. Like I mm. saw him with a gun. It just was, it just, I saw it. And so I said that and they're like, okay, this is weird. Like, so they made me go to the hospital, went to the hospital, sat on a gurney for 12 hours. They, they were trying to draw blood the whole time and you know, all my veins are gone. So I had a nurse on each arm and on one of my leg trying to find a vein. There's, I'm freaking out. It was like the worst night of my life. So then after the hospital, I walk back, go to, go to Aloe. I, I sleep for five days straight, wake up and I'm like, okay, I'm good. And I leave, go use. And it was like, took me straight to hell, you know? It, and then I immediately checked into another treatment center, stayed for a week and then have had a few slip ups since then. But yeah, man, it's been a wild ride. It, meth is like nothing I've ever experienced for, for for sure. It's another level of insanity. And but now I can say I've taken pretty much everything, probably except for alcohol, to like nth degree. <laughs> and that's that's waiting for me. You yeah. know, I can definitely do that. Like that's there for me. Um, but I don't need to do that because life is good sober. You know, as long as I do the the shit I need to do, right? Like which is for me is go to meetings is like, you know, working out, um, gratitude lists, you know, staying connected to people, calling Dave, you know, calling people who, who, who care about me, who know me, who will call me on my shit. Dude, um, let me just, let me just, all let, that let me say one thing. Cause one thing really stood out to me out of everything you just said. And you said it really quickly when you were talking about that, you're a critical thinker and, and conspiracy, you know, leaning into conspiracy because of Satan in the world, you know? And, yeah. uh, like my suggestion or, or it's a question slash suggestion. It's like, I feel like if the world is an evil place, right. And if the world is, yeah. is run by evil people, don't you think that the greatest solution would be to put as much love out as you could into that to, to do whatever you can do to undo the evil and to bring more love and to keep you in that good place. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great, a great, uh, solution, a great antidote. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's like love. I mean, I, I don't, I don't like to sound cheesy, but love is the answer. Love is the answer, yeah. Don. And you know that I love, you know that I love you, you know, dopey nation loves you. And, uh, just fucking stay on the fucking good path and try to lean into the love. No doubt, man. Yeah, I think that's really good advice and something that I'll I'll keep in mind. All we need is love. That's right. Said, said one of your favorite bands, right? Sun, sunlight of the spirit, my friend. And like, I think what we should do is we should do little check-ins with you uh, often 
because it seems like there's a lot of, of onion peeling to do, a lot of serious doping <laughs> that you have access to. And I would hate to deprive the dopey nation from this very fresh dopey <laughs> that you just experienced. <laughs> fresh dope. Exactly. Fresh, yeah. Exactly. Well, listen, man. Yeah, it's always an honor to be on. So whenever, whenever you're have me, you'll have me, I'm happy to... Uh, to be on and and you know you're you're killing it with the show i was just telling you the gary episode i i loved and just in general man it's so tight and um i just appreciate everything you do and and love the dopey nation and so i'm just it's a it's a privilege to be a part of it and be be on the show man so i appreciate you all right don i i appreciate you too and um that's the end of the show. You, you close the show. The crazy meth extravaganza. The paranoid, demonic meth extravaganza. Although Boston Born Agains was all about meth sex. Did you have a lot of meth sex out there? We'll save that for next time. I got to go. Right. Stay strong, <laughs> Dopey Nation. Thank you, Don. And fucking toodles for Chris. Fucking, fucking toodles for Chris. There we go. All right, buddy. Talk soon. Love you, man. Love you, too. Later. I want to take a walk around the world I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad I want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desires, all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind Leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road However far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I wanna be good so bad Wanna be good so bad, so bad I wanna be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad